All right, welcome everybody. Thanks for getting up on a beautiful Saturday morning and making it in for the. I know you do this in your love for the church. You're training to be spiritual leaders, and uh, certainly one one component. You know, it's interesting. You know, some of you know my sons have both been in training uh, as warriors, and uh, you know, part of the part of the you know the first phase of the training is is really it's training. You're getting trained at a basic level, but everything you do, you do in a manner to to weed people out. So. You know, I think of, of, of this class, you know, and, you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> maybe we could call this Buds 101 CPC, I don't know, but, yeah, 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 no, we're trying to, but no, there is an element of truth to this, I'm, I'm not lying, I, I do sometimes feel that we, we don't want to relax the content, we don't want to relax the, the expectations, partly because I don't want the kind of leaders that are relaxed getting in. I mean, if there, if you're, if you really are called to be a spiritual leader, you're called to be a spiritual. One metaphor would be a, a soldier of Christ. You know, Paul uses that metaphor. It's, it's actually the metaphor that we see given to Adam in Eden that he is to take dominion over and conquer and subdue. Those are the words Kabash and Sadar. And so, uh, so anyway, you're here. And um, but I, I say this because I'm obviously heavy-hearted today. Um, I wanted to start us in prayer. Um, what happened yesterday was was just uh, uh, it's really it's, it's really a global transformational event. Um, some of you know that my son is over there and, and we had a scheduled meeting for today and he had to text and say I can't meet. I've got a job to do and I know what that means. The whole world is changing um, if you're listening to the people who are on the front lines because of what happened. So. So, you know, in some ways that's a good thing. We've needed to kind of, the chain needed to get cut. We need to get, we need to be aware that there's an evil. And But I'm just reminded because as I was uh, listening to Stephen and then also just thinking about uh, today, so I am heavy hearted. I, I mean, there's just a lot of people grieving in France right now. A country, as you know, our oldest ally. And, and um, I don't know, I'm moved by that. And I hope that you are. And we need to be praying for the world. It's, but I was just overwhelmed a little bit um, last night as I was watching the news with just how I'm just looking at these scenes. And it's just uh, the, the picture of, of a world that is still so fraught with evil and so fraught, fraught with the enemies of God. And the enemies of, when I say God, I don't mean necessarily even explicitly, but indirectly. The enemies of God's order, the enemies of God's peace, the enemies of God's ways, if you will. So so I was thinking about it. So I thought we'd have a devotion this morning, if I could, and uh, just read from Psalms. What's interesting is, you'll hear, I was preparing, working on my Esther sermon yesterday for next week, because um, next week's got a lot of things going on, so I was trying to get ahead of it on Friday. And um, and it really, you'll see it next week, but it really is, the focus of the sermon really is on the, the nations that are raging against God, against the Anointed One, and this idea of that. So it's uh, interesting that, so I'm going to read two passages. I'm going to start with the New Testament passage, and you can see it up here. When they were released, this is, this is how, of course, Acts frames the, the, uh, the Messianic call. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. By the way, I love that. That's that's something we've talked about. and can't help but do this. But 
but who wrote the scriptures according to this passage? You know, we, we've talked about this the other night, but I mean, we devotion to the Holy Spirit is the devotion to the scripture. So, said by the Holy Spirit, quoting Psalms, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers who were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Um, and, it, and it goes on and, and you know, talks about this uh, event with Pontius Pilate, etc. Um, but then at the end, they, they end with this prayer. Uh, and when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God in boldness. You know, events like this, the, the, reject, the re- reaction that you see in Scripture is often the same reaction. It's a confidence that, that there's a sovereign God who will win. And the response is boldness. Uh, it's interesting here. Not whimpering and covering and cowering, but boldness. And so I, I think of this psalm, Psalms 138, and uh, let me just read uh, what he says here. On the day that I called you, you answered me. My strength of soul was increased. All the kings of the earth shall give thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth, and they shall sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. So I think just, uh, just if you let this scripture frame our global context, you know, it just reminds us that one, uh, that the nations do rage. This is no new phenomenon. The nations are raging right now. Just raging. And yet, the Lord is sovereign. You know, the Lord is, is, is in control. And uh, this promise that, you know, he will, his wrath is a greater wrath than the wrath of the nations. You know, so it's just a, a promise. And I think we just need to stop and pray for our world for a minute. But would a couple of you do that, and then I'll close this. Let's just pray for our world.
also being annihilated by others, which is in that image. Anybody. 
Um, what I want to do, uh, so again, let me make clear, there's, uh, I put four, can everybody see, first of all, and if you can't see, do you have a handout in front of you? Because we will be utilizing this, uh, and the handout you need for me is about, uh, it's about a 20-page handout, which is why I put it in there. So if you don't have that handout, you don't have the one I'm referring to that we're going to be utilizing up here. So if you can't see, get closer, and if you must, uh, pick up, uh, if somebody has an extra handout, then you can uh, give it to somebody that doesn't have one, or doesn't need one, if you don't need one. And if we need to copy some more, I can, I can get that down, I'm sure, but I was trying to. Uh, yeah, the handouts, all every, every week, everything is on the website before you come. All right, that's the whole point. We're trying to get you trained to use your website and to utilize uh, the materials that are there. So you can always copy it for yourself. You can always bring your iPad or whatever and, but, and utilize that as, as a following the handout. So it's, you've got many sources now. We're doing that partly because, we, thanks to Chris Batista, we got this place all wired up right. So you should have full access to the uh, Internet, and um, we've really done some cleaning house in that regard. But what I want to do first, before we start the confessionalism uh, directly, I want to make sure you remember, since we have these months in between, I just want to make sure you remember a little bit of what the thesis is. What, what are we doing here? So, you know, part one was, of course, really focusing in on, on missional ecclesiology, just the idea of what, what is the nature of the church, its power, the extent and limits of that power. We looked at the, the shepherding call, the role of the shepherd. We read that book, you remember, Shepherd Leader. Um, so we really were focusing on sort of the, the elder WLB training curriculum insofar as it's directly related to our theology of office and our theology of church. Okay? Now what we're doing is part two is is... In a, in, in a view of your governing, in a view towards your ruling, in a view towards your shepherding, what are some of those key issues? What are some of the challenges that we're going to face in terms of that shepherding ministry with respect to our our five core values or our five, you know, the five marks of the church? So obviously we're looking at the gospel-centered church last week, and we tried to say, you know, what are some of the challenges that we face relative to being gospel-centered? things that we need to be thinking about. Um, today we're looking at the confessional, and off we go. But I wanted to step back because there's one thesis that I want to really just keep drilling home to you every single week. And you see this thesis right here, summary and thesis. Um, the church's total Christ is but Christology applied to ascension. Now, I don't know if... Uh, I want to see if you can do this. So when we say the church is missional... How does that relate to Christology applied? Anybody know? What are we looking at? Who is Christ? That, that, that therefore, if to, remember, the total Christ thesis is the Word became flesh and templed among us, and to that flesh was given the church total Christ. I.e., he's quote, he's thinking of you know the Augustine quote, thinking about Ephesians chapter one twenty three, and the idea that under the ascension he just got through praying for the power of Christ, the power of the ascended Lord. That great prayer in Ephesians. Remember, I'm praying that you would know the power of God. And what's so interesting is what does he do? After he starts talking about the great power and, had, and having the power of God through the power of the Holy Spirit, he does ecclesiology. <laughs> and you go, whoa, I didn't expect that coming out of my broad evangelicalism. But he gives you that statement, that thesis, that, that Christ is the head of the church, the body of Christ, the fullness of him, or the total Christ, 
for all in all. So there's something in the Ascension ministry, he's arguing, that is incomplete apart from the real, albeit mystical, body of Christ. Okay, that's the that's the point that is so important here. So with that statement in mind, um, I want you to let's make sure you get the, you can connect the dots. So we call the church missional. What Christological category are we referring to? The missional. That's the hardest question of all five, by the way. That's why I started there. Or if I say Christ is. We're, we want to be gospel-centered. What is the Christological category about the person and, and work of Christ? What's the Christological category of the person and work of Christ is the question I'm asking through every bit of this. I'm not going to let my seminary uh, uh, student quite answer yet. Salvation. No. No. I'm looking for a Christological vocation. With respect to the five marks. So I asked you a question of, let's, let's don't start the missional. Let's get easy. So I'm going to talk about the confessional church. What vocational, Christological, you know, category would that apply to, do you think? The confessional? Prophet. Good. Why? Because we're talking about the ministry of word. We're talking about the ministry of, of, of the uh, that we want to be a church that, that we will talk about in a minute that, that holds to a very high regard to the ministry of word. The ministry of word is, it's, of course, contained in the scriptures of the Old New Testament and how we read that word vis-a-vis with and in the communal context of the church in a confessional manner. Okay, we're going to talk about that a lot today. So Christ the prophet. I'm going to talk about the sacramental church. Christ the priest. I'm going to talk about Christ the shepherding or governing or the, the discipline of the church. The communal church. The, the kingdom community that is governed by Christ. What are we talking about? Now you're picking it up. Alright, we're warming up. Now let's get to the more ones that I find that people don't quite get at first. Now let's talk about the gospel-centered church. Who is Christ. Now, this is where, if you've been reading those handouts, you'd know it, but it's right in there, but it does get lost, I think, which is why I'm doing it. Who is Christ wherein we have a gospel-centered commission? Relative to the gospel-centered. How does that function in the argument of redemptive history? No. Okay, prophet, priest, and king, yes. But we've already said those. We're not going to reduplicate them. So we're looking for something else. Now, this is getting you duped, isn't it? Savior? Yeah, but that's not what I'm looking for. That's, the, that's what he did. I'm looking for the vocation. I'm looking for the, or the institution, if you will. Is it the church? No. I'm glad I did this. All right, well, think about, it. What, what, what did we say? There was never a time in all redemptive history when there was salvation apart from what institution? Temple Temple's one of them. What was the other one? Temple presence was one of them. Sacrifice. That's part of the temple presence. What's the other one? Say it, somebody. He's trying to help you out. Yes. 
Oh boy, we got some work to do, don't we? Uh, well, again, this is part of what we've. It, it, it's all in that sort of nature and extent church. But here's what. What? But this is good. Just kind of step back and put it together. So that's all right. Um, it's a critique of the teacher, not the talk. So I'll, I'll take full blame if you don't know it. Um, so, so, uh, but think about what we've said. There's never been a time in all redemptive history where what, where there's been salvation apart from a covenant. What is a covenant? It's a legal transaction wherein the one who assumes the vow or the responsibility of that transaction, the covenant head, assumes responsibility for the blessings and the curses of that covenant. So who was the first covenant head? Adam. Who's the second Adam? Christ. Who then fulfills the covenant? Christ. In the beginning was the Word. Now there I believe he's not talking about prophet. He's talking about this whole forensic, covenantal revelation of God. That, that was that It's the whole paradigm that sets up Genesis. And so we have Adam who vows upon himself, bone upon bones, flesh upon flesh. In other words, I assume the responsibilities of this covenant... And, and, and I assume the curse of this covenant insofar as the curse needs to be assumed. He's taking full responsibility for this covenant. And, of course, Adam fails. That's exactly the point. It's, it's a marriage covenant. So, remember, there's many different ways and angles of thinking about covenant. One of the prominent uh, narratives that you see is the marriage covenant, which is where Adam and Eve, of course, come in. Eve is the first church. And so you have this, this, uh, this covenantal relationship to God. And and so Christ enters in the world, and what does he say? I'm going to fulfill the covenant, the law. I have come not to, uh, uh, to what, to, to abolish it, but to fulfill it. He is the covenant. Fulfilled. And then you said it. So that's the gospel center. Now here's the one I wanted to make sure you got clear. How is it that, what is the relationship between what we say is the missional church and Christ the temple? What's the whole thesis of the temple? You said it. Presence, good. Presence. How is Christ in the ascended ministry present in the flesh and blood of the people today? The temple. The temple church. And so the idea, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. Here you have covenant word, temple flesh, you have gospel-centered. The focus of everything we do is to get people to the covenant executor, Jesus Christ, who fulfills all the forensic responsibilities of that contract. We're saved by grace through faith, not of works, not the covenantal works that we have to do. It's the free gift of God. God, you could honestly say, which will be the point of my service a little bit later, you can honestly say that we're saved by works, can't you? God didn't abolish the law. He didn't say, oh, bad idea. This whole works thing that I set up in Eden, do this and you'll live, do this and you'll die. You see the stipulations, curses, promises, etc. That whole system that's forensic, bad idea. He didn't say that. Like some people have that idea. It's like, there's, you know, when we talk about the new and old covenant, sometimes I think they mean the old, meaning there was a covenant, and the new, there's no more covenant anymore. No, that's not what's going on. What he's saying is, the old covenant under Adam 
is fulfilled in the new covenant because we have a new Adam, Jesus Christ. That's the exact argument of Paul in chapter 7. He, he relates it to the marriage covenant. And he says, when your old marriage partner dies, you're set free to a new marriage partner. If your husband dies, wives, you're, you're allowed to get married to another husband. And he's saying, so too the church, the bride of Christ. When they were wed, wed to Adam, the first covenant head, who assumed the marriage vows of the covenant, who failed us, and we with him, <laughs> failed him, if you will, we now have this new covenant because there's a new covenant head, a new husband who fulfills the same covenant. So it's not that it's works versus grace. It's rather works fulfilled by grace. You see? So we're not antinomian. And that's a, there's a whole lot of stuff that comes under this that you do. So I want to just kind of make sure you see that. Um, so, you know, here we have it right here. You can just see it. You know, uh, there was never a time in all redemptive history when salvation was transacted apart from the forensic-oriented, once-and-for-all accomplished covenantal transactions such as to satisfy God's divine law. The Logos or the covenant executor is Christ. That's Christology. Applied to the church, we want to be gospel-centered or covenant-fulfilled-centered, grace-centered. You see? And I give you the scripture under that. And you've got all this in your notes and elsewhere. This is stuff we've done before. Then there was never a time in all of redemptive history when salvation was not transacted apart from divine presence as mediated, applied, in, with, and through the temple. The word fleshed out to be the word logos templed in the midst of us. Now, the reason we call it missional is why? Because the whole idea of John's gospel and about the temple is that it's, it's, it's God mediating his presence in our midst. God sent Jesus Christ, the temple, into the midst of us, according to John. And then John in his great commission is going to say what? In chapter 20, verse 21, as the Father sent me, John stays his temple, so I send you. You go be a temple. And that's where he gives that incredible statement where he gives, and what Jesus does right after that in chapter 20 is he gives the benediction of the temple. And he, and he tells this, this group of disciples the, who would be the, 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 you know, the beginning of the church, the foundation of the church, he tells them what you forgive will be forgiven. What you, what you bind, you know, it's the same thing as binding and loosing. What you forgive will be forgiven. What's he saying? See, that's the church that defines itself not as a source of missions. That was Father. God is the source of missions who sent his Son. No, the church sees themselves as the Son, mystically united by the Holy Spirit to Christ. We become the Son who was sent. We are not missionary in the sense, we're not mission-sending churches, but we can do that too. We are at our core defined missionally. That is, there is the locus of mission. You see the difference? In other words, if you were to go around and, and say, Jesus Christ, would you say, oh, he, he, his purpose was to be the source of missions? Could you say that about Jesus? Well, I guess he is the beginning of missions. He's the thought, you know, there's a sense in which you could say it, I guess. But no, you would say, he is the mission of God. He is the mission of God incarnate. He is the presence of that mission to save the world. Wherever Jesus was, in other words, another way to say it is wherever Jesus was, there was salvation. It was the location for salvation to take place. 
Now this is crucial because coming out of my parachurch world, I viewed the church at its best, if I even had a good view of the church at the time. I, at best, it would it's preparing missionaries to go out into the world. I didn't have a, but that's not where the action is. As a young man seeking to know who had been born again, who wanted to be where the action was, the last place I was going to look was to be a pastor of a church, because that's not where the action is. It's all those really cool renewal movements going on all around the church, but not the church. Church is dead, boring. And at best, they may, you know, feed me and, and you know, train me a little bit and do some stuff like that. It, it might be a good, you know, seminary. It might be a good uh, accreditation board, you know. But it's not where the location, it's not where the action happens. So when we say missional church, we're distinguishing ourselves from the mission-sending only church. We see this place where we gather as where people get saved because they meet Jesus Christ. And they meet him in a deeper way than they will ever meet him anywhere else because it's been ordained of God to meet him there. I think that is a major crisis in evangelicals to understand that. Major. And I would include our church as part of that. We still don't have in our head that Jesus has an address on Sunday. He really is there, really and truly, by the Spirit, mystically united, the body, the flesh, and the body of Christ. He is there the more, most powerful and the most real way He can ever be there in the ascension ministry of Christ. So don't, any questions about That's the overall. So the reason I say all that is so that if you have these two institutions in redemptive history, covenant and temple, fulfilled in Christ, as are the covenant of God fulfilled, the temple of God fulfilled, those express sort of the telos, or the purpose. It's, it's what we call the eschatological, if you think about redemptive history through the ages, sort of Christological categories. I know that's high-level theology going here, but do you understand what I just said? Think about redemptive history, and there's this unbroken line of covenantal transaction, this unbroken line of temple presence wherein salvation takes place. But then you ask the question, what are the offices that serve those institutions, both covenant and temple? What are those offices? That's it. You see? So think of it this way. The institution of covenant, the institution of mission, of, of temple, gospel-centered and missional. And then you have the three offices of Christ fulfilled in each of those. There's covenantal uh, instructions about the worship. There's covenantal instructions about the word. There's covenantal instructions about and regulations about the government of the church. So prophet, priest, and king are the instrumentals, if you will. They are the vocations, the offices that serve those two, those two purposes. To be both gospel-centered, covenantal, and missional. Does that help? And of course, just to show you this sort of Christology, I want to get now into the confession. But any questions before I do that? Are you just dumbfounded? This is your time. You can ask. Does it make sense? How many people feel like they understand generally what I just said? Raise your hand, honestly. Alright, how many people say you don't know that you do understand what I just said? Raise your hand honestly. Okay, I need you to ask a question. Tell me what's confusing you. I understand what you're saying, but when I look around and from where I've been and so forth, it, 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 uh, I, haven't, I haven't heard this. 
No. And I've seen this. So do you don't understand it or you don't believe it? Is that is there a difference? Uh, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's new to you. Well, it just it, it doesn't look like that out there. <laughs> I'm not sure, yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure what uh, the percentage of local churches would be that that have that same understanding and certainly not a church historian mm-hmm. uh, but what I know about uh, the church church uh, history over the, the centuries it hasn't looked like that okay does everybody agree with that y'all think this is just like crazy stuff do you think church history has any evidence of this what do y'all think anybody want to respond to that so tell me which part of this the church doesn't look like. Is the church not gospel-centered? Many of them. All right. Most of them. Good. Is the church not prophetic? Which part of these, which, which mark do you feel it is not? Or is it something else? I'm trying to understand. Because in my mind, what's, it, it, what's interesting to me, and I heard it just yesterday actually from someone who was, who was it, who was talking to, um, is one of our church planners. And he, he said... That oh yeah, it was in our we had our collaborative our video our, our global collaborative this Thursday and um, we were talking somehow it came out and, and this person said you know the thing I find is that it's not that no one would disagree with this I mean those are his words that no one would disagree with this who would ever not agree that these are these five marks are essential marks of a healthy church that to not be not to have sacramental and sacramental in your church would be okay, or not to have shepherd governing ministry in your church would be okay, or not to have a ministry of the word would be okay, and I'd go right to the gospel center, or not to be missional, you know, would be okay. He, he said, you know, I don't think anybody would disagree with this. He said, what is so, what is so helpful to him about it is that, that it's trying to be holistic at the same time. It's trying to say we want to be all five. We don't just want to be one or another. It's we want to be all five. And so that may help you a little bit. So when you say the church has never been that, Yes, I could show you in church history that the three, you know, that the, these marks have always been essential to a church being defined as a church. I could just go right through the, the creeds and you could see that what is a church? What are the marks of the church? Well, they're always going to clarify that it's got to be defined by the true gospel. They're always going to tell you that there's going to be these three marks of ministry of word, ministry of sacrament, and ministry, and they call it different things order, discipline, you know, government. You can see it in the. Third, I read yesterday just for the fun of it. I was reading the uh, Anglican 39 articles because someone asked me a question about Anglicanism. And there it is, right there. It's just as clear as day that there, there are these marks. These five marks are right there in that thing. They tell you what the church is by those marks. So I'm not sure what you mean. They're yeah. there, but they're not used. Oh, well, they're, they're <laughs> that's an indictment. They're not acted upon. Uh, the, the observation that you mm-hmm. shared. Uh, now, with this, your observation of the church, yeah, it's a nice place that sends people out, but the action is out there. Yeah. Uh, here. Yeah. yeah, that, I, I, yeah. I see the same thing that you were talking about yeah. there. Yeah. How'd you get that idea that that's what they From, from the scripture, and the definition of the church being the very no, presence no, of Christ. How'd you get the impression oh. that you no longer hold? I don't know who. I don't know. Well, I want to get somebody else in here. Go ahead. Let's let him answer. It's out there. 
I mean, that's yeah. too sad. That, yeah, that, that could be the oppression that you get. You train people and you set right. forth them, right. but right. the action right. isn't in the church. It's, it's, that was my impression. I was telling you the biography. That was my impression. Because that's just the experience I had growing up. Plus experience I had bad. All right. <laughs> so how, come, how come we see so much of this being? Oh, uh, well, I don't know. I, that, that's a bigger question. Kevin, go ahead and get in here. I do, I do think that gospel and, and uh, temple as two overarching categories uh, are rarely found together. Mm, mm, and I think mm. when, I, when I think of the Reformed tradition and what we see as the biggest problem in humanity and what, the God, and what Jesus and the whole Bible is about, it is about dealing with the problem of sin. Yeah. And so the gospel comes in to do that. The covenant addresses that right. in, a, in a way that we frame the entire problem. Other traditions yeah. um, will focus a lot more, and this is where I sometimes talk to a charismatic and just talk past each other on what Christianity is all about, even though we share the same Bible and the same tradition. But then they'll talk about the presence of God and, yep. and you know, feeling Him and, and being in God's presence and how powerful that is and transformative it is. And uh, I can talk about all the, the points of sin and, and God and the gospel, and it just, it just seems like different languages. But I think we're both hitting the truths yep. there. It's a little harder for us, I think, to get into the temple stuff because our if you've been in this tradition that has framed it in relation to sin um, and, the, and, and Jesus' redemptive work in that in that aspect, it's hard to to go to brain over to the other yeah. other side of it and, and vice versa. So I think it, it is those are the two that make it hard. Prophet, priest, and king are a little easier. Yeah. There are three ministries almost you can think of. Yeah. Yeah, once you kind of get that down. Well, it's very important. That's a good comment because I do, because I did, you know, my, my being coming to Christ was at least in a kind of quasi charismatic environment. And, and there is a lot of, of emphasis upon the, the heat, if you will, the presence uh, and experiencing that presence. It was never tied to ecclesiology when I was, for me at least, when I was in that tradition. It was always the personal Holy Spirit. Um, and there is an element of personal Holy Spirit. But the point being is that what we're saying is that how is that presence regulated the way that God regulated it throughout every redemptive history area? In other words, how do we know that it's really the presence of Christ and not some other God that we've created presence? Um, and so that's where the church, defined by the covenant, and I hope you see the interconnectedness of it, the church is defined and regulated by the covenant. The covenant is... Is uh, how do I is transacted is made efficacious, if you will, by the temple. Apart from the temple, there's no presence that makes that brings the heat and the power of the covenant. Apart from the covenant, there is no light that governs and and regulates this in order for it not to be idolatrous presence. You need both in, and that's exactly what was being talked about Thursday in our collaborative. This guy saying, you know, what's so profound about all this that we're talking about is we're trying to create, we're trying to go back to the scriptures and be total Christ, not partial Christ. And your point might be that, yeah, I've seen this in this church, or I've seen that in this church, and I've seen that in this church. And I'm even say in this church, I would say we still struggle probably to be very heavy weighted in one area and very light weighted in another area. But at least we have a grid. At least we have a metric 
from the scripture, which the churches always agree with. You can't, again, you go to any creed and you say, yeah, they're all five and any healthy creed about the church, they're all there. That how do you know a true church from a false church question? Oh, it's got to be gospel-centered. It's got to see itself as mission, as being present for the world and, and, and missional. It's got to have ministry of word, sacrament, and government. You know, every history would have that. But then what happens is we, we piece them apart, and that's the thesis of modernity. One more, yeah. One other piece to that that I would say is odd and mm. is hard for people to get to is... All of those things you're saying, you know, the comment that somebody made, nobody would disagree with this. I think the, people, the point that people would disagree with is that God instituted the church to fill that role yeah. and not an individual. Yeah. You know, all this talk about union with Christ, which is very common right now, is always just seems, seems so you, in, individuals in, leaning in. Yeah. Union with Christ, not. That's right. And That's so right. the idea that evangelicalism has gone so hyper yeah. And, and any type of corporate identity that's not just a gathering for pragmatic reasons, but an actual institution by, by God that's, that's intentionally to have that identity is really far. That's so. right. Yeah. We're going to keep it short real quick. Yeah. I just have a quote by Calvin that I think mm. speaks to mm. your, your point. Uh, what he says, and this was a really helpful quote for me when I was in a church where I really felt like, is this, is this even a new church? Um, Calvin says, I reply, so long as they profess Christianity, worship one God, observe the sacraments, and enjoy some kind of gospel ministry, they retain the external marks of a church. We do not always find in churches such a measure of purity as might be desired. The purists have their blemishes, and some are marked not by a few spots, but by general deformity. Yeah. And I think that... It's good. If you're looking for the things, even in our, you know, like, it's easy to pick on the Roman Catholic Church, but the Gospel's there. Every week they say the creed. Every week they say that Jesus Christ descended from heaven and, you know, saved, you know, did all of these things to save us before the Mass. Is it prominent? Is it strong? No. But I think that those things are present in churches. It might not always be front center. Good point. Yeah, we all confess that we're fallible churches. Some more fallible than others, but I suspect it. Let God be judge. All right, well, that's anything else? Uh, did you want to ask a question? You can raise your hand, I think, over there. Um, I, I think I, so a lot of it I'm, I'm with you on. I think I lost it a little bit in trying to uh, separate just how you were really purely trying to relate the missional yeah. concept yeah. to the Christ as the covenant had. Um, it, well, he's the Christ is the temple. Well, but, but so you brought it back to covenant then. I lost okay. where we were. You lost Christ. me there. Let me clarify. I, I, I didn't make that link. Okay, good. Thank you. There. So, so when I speak of the covenant, now I'm, what is what is how did Christ fulfill it? Well, he fulfilled it by becoming the executive, the executor of that covenant. He took upon himself the responsibility of satisfying the covenant and that by faith as our federal head as the executor representing all those who by faith in him his work of fulfilling the covenant satisfies what I owed he took it's the whole propitiatory sacrifice idea he substituted for me as covenant 
be substituted. He put himself instead of me. And that's what the role of a covenant executor is. It's If you think about it, if you were to die, and you were to appoint a, an executor of your last will and covenant, you're giving this person to be your substitute in the transaction. You're saying, I want this person to represent me in transacting this covenant when I die. Right? Jesus Christ is the covenant executor of, of the last will and testament, if you will, of our life. And we're asking him to do that. Now, I'm getting to the temple. I just want to make it, because I, I can tell there's some fuzziness. So when I speak of Christ, the covenant head, that's what I'm talking about. Now this covenant, has it's, it's a document of stipulations and rules and laws, all that need to be fulfilled, right? And when we look to the temple... It's true that the covenant is going to regulate the temple with those laws. The covenant is going to say, here's what a temple should be and not be. We see it in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament. And, and, and the way we allude to that, especially with the apostles, is that they become the foundation. Remember, Christ is the cornerstone. They become the foundation, that is, the architectural design of this church. This, this is the temple church. And right there in Ephesians 2, he describes what the apostles are doing as building a temple. The temple of God, the dwelling place. He says it four ways, the household of God. He's just over and over. So Ephesians is very much focused on this temple work of Christ. And so, in, in that passage at least. And so when I think of the temple being fulfilled now, I'm not thinking of, of the covenant executor role wherein he substitutes for me in satisfying the covenant, all that objective forensic work that he did. That I, I can be saved by grace through faith alone. In his work, not mine. His covenant work, not mine. As temple, we're told by John, we're told by that he becomes the very living presence of God, right? That's the whole thesis of John, that he is the temple incarnate. And then in the church, and, and what I'm just saying there is that, and so you don't think of the temple incarnate as being removed from the missional sentness of God. God sent his son as temple. The very life-giving presence of God wherever he walked around in this earth. And the question, remember, is all related to ascension now. Where is all this stuff in ascension? And the answer is the church. The body of Christ. I mean, that language, body of Christ, we have so metaphorized it, we've so figurized it in reaction to Rome that we've lost the, the very significance of that language in the New Testament. The body of Christ really means presence. He's present in bodily form somehow. But it's mystical union with Christ in heaven by the Holy Spirit acting in with and through the communion of saints, the body of Christ. So so I think what I, I don't know if I've answered, so the Christology of Christ is that he is both covenant head, or representing the covenant, he's fulfilled the covenant, he is temple presence, and in the, in the ascension age, since he's now up there, that ministry of covenantal is vis-a-vis is -vis the church as the gospel. That is the transaction of the gospel that we declare every day. It's a declarative ministry. That transaction of Christ by the Holy Spirit is communally transacted in the body of Christ by the very flesh and blood community of the body of Christ where he is in the midst of us. Does that help or not? He's the temple. And we then become the temple presence, the mediatorial temple. 
Every word that I would say by there, prophet, priest, king, covenant, temple, always put the word mediatorial. Because we want to distinguish the, the sense in which the church is those five things from the sense that Christ is those five things. He is the immediate five marks, if you will, in his very being. We are mediating it with the power power of the Holy Spirit in the midst of us. Okay? This is fun. I'm, I'm hoping you're getting, the, getting your framework here. Because it's going to be very helpful. Well, let's, let's move on because I do want to um, move to confessionalism. Now, many of you have had... How many of you have had theology class? Raise your hand. I think good many of good. So if you had a theology class, you already know what confessionalism is, right? And you already understand what that means. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. But if you want to turn to that, that now we're on the... Uh, the, the uh, handout confessionalism and subscription. I want to bring Kevin in here, but let's just, just to get us all warmed up a little bit, remind ourselves what confessionalism is. Confessionalism, then, is the process whereby the church adopts a corporate consensus as to what the scriptures principally teach based upon shared exegetical conclusions and utilizes this consensus as a basis for Christian faith, practice, and unity when acting as a church. Stated plainly, the confessional church is any church whose identity is most essentially what it believes and whose beliefs beliefs drives what it does. Um, the, the goal of confessionalism is to preserve the apostolic faith. Then we're going down into the word again, right? Our own confession teaches about itself that it's fallible. That all controversies of religion are to be determined and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined and whose sentences since we are to rest, can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. Where does the Holy Spirit speak? In Scripture. That's the only rule of faith we have, you know, that binds our conscience, right? And what we're saying then is that the church is confessional, one, insofar as it recognizes the Holy Scripture as the only rule of faith and practice, but two, we read it as a church. We don't read it just as private individuals. The scripture says, who is the pillar of the church, of the truth? Y'all know that passage in Timothy? Who's the pillar and bulwark of the truth? It didn't say Billy Bob. It didn't say Paul. It says the church. The church is the pillar and bulwark of the truth. How was, how was the scripture read in scripture? It was Paul. It was Peter. It was even those who gave us the word, but whenever there was a controversy, how did they read it? They gathered a council of the church together. They didn't they, they said, okay, let's read it together as a community. It's a communal way of reading the Bible. And of course we have a two thousand year community. So how does that community continue to speak to one another? As we read the Bible together, we form a consensus and we call that a creed. And it's not that the creed is infallible. It's not. It's fallible. But it's that the creed is is the consensus of the church as it then... So the advantage of this is there's... Every generation can... While we're not going to, rely, we're not going to uh, authorize any creed to be our only rule of faith and practice, we have the advantage of piggybacking and not making the same errors twice, if you will, for one... And reading the Bible with people of other eras and other ages and other languages. And we all know, as C.S. Lewis describes, that every culture has, has viruses, right? We all have a virus, blind spots. 
How do we get beyond those blind spots? Well, not infallibly, but how do we get beyond them? Let's read with other people. Let's read with people who are from a very vastly different context. And if we can all together agree, yes, the scriptures teach this, we've got a much higher confidence of interpretive, uh, of interpreting the uh, Bible correctly, don't we? Than if we read it privately and by myself. Literally, I mean, can you imagine coming up to this? I mean, now knowing what I know, can I imagine going to a church that says no creep of the Bible? Because here's what it would tell me now, a trained theologian pastor. It would tell me that I don't have the advantage of 2,000 years of studying the Scripture when that man walks into a pulpit. It would tell me that this person is trying to reconstruct 2,000 years of history in his feeble 20, 30, 40 years of life. You would tell me that, that I'm going to be... If he has weaknesses and blind spots, there's going to be nothing that's going to to regulate. There's nothing that's going to challenge that. It's just going to come out. Whereas if you're going to a confessional church who has such a high value of Scripture that it acknowledges that I do to protect Scripture from false interpretation, I'm going to read the Scripture with the pillar and board with the truth, the church, you still are going to have a fallible church. And your pastors are still going to preach bad things sometimes. Starting here. But you have a greater chance. But the fact that Kevin and me and others and anybody else out there in these other traditions have had to be examined as to what part of the church consensus do you not agree with and evaluated. We're going to talk about that, that importance of subscription in a minute for all officers of the church. And evaluated as to whether or not that scruple is of such significance that you could harm the church being such a renegade on that issue. The fact that everyone that you come to in a confessional church has had that examination, not infallible. But at least you get in a little more confidence here. You see what I'm saying? That's confessionalism. It's, it's the idea that we read the scriptures corporately. We, why? Because we have such a high regard for the scripture. The whole intent of creeds and confessions was to preserve the authority of scripture. Never to supplant it. But to preserve it against private, individualistic, erroneous, blind-minded, short-sighted interpretations. Yeah. It's like the cure for glaucoma. Hmm. Yeah. Blind spot, but another way. Yeah, good. That's good. Yeah. So that's confessionalism generally. And um, and uh, of course you have some scriptures here. You see them up in front of you on the screen. Um, just keeping in mind, uh, when we think of the relation of creed to scripture, there's basically three views traditionally out there. And you have this little map to face this out. If you're Roman Catholic, you have scripture, tradition, us. So tradition now... Um, we only access the tradition who is accessing for us the scripture. And by the way, you know who drew this for me? I think I told you this. During my doctoral studies at Aberdeen, it was a Roman Catholic historian. This is this is his models. So it, it gives a look. It does. It does. Uh, what I say? It, it, it passes the the strongman test a little bit better for me. Um, so these were his models. And then you have the uh, the Anabaptist position, which just went. To the other extreme, just took out tradition altogether. Says no tradition. Scripture and me. Very individualistic. And then you have uh, what he called the magisterial Protestant, which would include all the. This would be Anglican. This would be you know uh, 
reform, this would be Presbyterian, this would be congregational, New England congregationalism back in its day. This would, this would be a whole lot of denominations here, just so you understand what he means by magisterial. And what he's saying here is that we are all, we have access, you see that there's this triangle, tradition, um, and then he, the magisterium, if you will, that is those representing the tradition, let's say your session, and us, individuals, and scripture is is accessible to all. So there's an ongoing, and, and he, again, as a historian, he, he, he confessed, as I was, he, he was, he and I became friends, and we were taking a ride up in the uh, Scottish mountains, and he wanted me to show me all around, we were doing history together, it was a lot of fun, and he kind of privately conceded here that, that he, he, he's a little biased towards it, he feels like there's some wisdom to this model here. Um, but the idea being that, that there's a kind of accountability that everyone shares, is the idea of this one. So when you hear a sermon, you know, if you were to read our confession and creed, to be confessional is to be a Berean who examines the scriptures and expects your pastor to, with you, help you examine the scriptures. Why? Because you're accountable. As an individual, you're not saying, oh, I'm just going to believe whatever they tell me to believe. No. You're accountable for what you believe. May I, I may be accountable for what, you, what I teach, but I'm not accountable for what you believe. There's a difference. You're accountable for what you believe. I'm not going to be standing next to you. No pastor's going to be standing next to you. you know? You're going to be on. It's going to be you, man, with the Lord. Thank God. Can't think of anybody I'd rather meet than Jesus if I'm a sinner. But you see the point? So this is the idea that every individual has is, is meant to, there's a kind of collaborative going on here. And, and, and this idea of scripture related to that. So that's confessionalism. Um, I give you this little, you've seen this if you've been in the class, but just the ridiculousness of not reading the church with other churches. You know, here we are in this little circle somewhere, and there is a whole lot of other people reading the same source. And we ought to be engaging that a little bit with each other. Excuse me. So, um, any questions about confessionalism in, in terms of what I've said? There's a lot of other stuff about the use of creeds uh, that supports that as a basis of Christian unity for instruction, for ecclesiastical discipline, and a basis for evaluating unity. That's the one thing I always hit on the most. It always strikes me to say, you know, dogma is anti-unifying. But if you're not, if, if you, if you're not unified around a common belief, then what are you being unified? What, what fills the vacuum? Think about that. That is a horrific thought. What fills the vacuum if it's not creed? What unites us? Any guesses? Pastor's pet project. Pastor's pet project. So it becomes the ex-ministry church. We're all a philosophy. You know, I can, again, I was trained for five years, seven years, whatever it was, in, in campus ministry. What united us was a philosophy of ministry. What we call a philosophy of ministry or a strategy. Well, we all had. What was the difference between me and Crusade? Theological difference. We didn't even have much of a theology. But what, what distinguishes is they had the four spiritual laws, and that's their strategy, and they had a real specific idea of how you do evangelism, and we were more focused on another kind of evangelism. Really? That's my ecumenicalism? That's my Catholicity? That I share this strategy versus that strategy? So often in evangelicalism, what unifies us is a missionary strategy. Well intended, but that's what it does. Or... What's, what's, what fills the vacuum in the Church of America, according to Withnow, 
is that we become so culture oriented that what you what the one thing that you will hold in common in any given church on a Sunday is how you voted in the last presidential election. About eighty percent of churches, that's that's what you could go. What do you believe about baptism? Uh, I'm not sure. What do you believe about? Uh, what do you what do you believe about? Uh, uh, is it Obama or is it who was it? Mitt Romney? Oh, Mitt Romney all the way. No, that's a vacuum being filled by culture wars. You see, so that's what this is so important about, and um, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna stop here. So what I want to do is to give you about a, a five minute break. Uh, oh, was that a question? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I didn't see it. Sorry. Uh, just to be certain, I understand this. Something like a cyclical, which I think. It don't, I mean, that would, the Roman Catholic Church would believe that to be true, like decreed, like as yeah. as high as. It's, it's a, yeah. It's it's it's. It's script. He's gonna. We're gonna get into that later into the trajectory thing. But it's in some ways another form of church. It's the it's the church now. The only it's the only authorized. Well, how do I say it? There's also a, a continuing revelatory aspect to the Roman Church. So these encyclicals, it can be an interpretation of something, but it also could be a new, a kind of beside the Scripture, consistent with Scripture. Let's be honest. They don't ever say, "Oh, we can change Scripture." They're always going to argue that any encyclical has got to be consistent with the teachings of Scripture. But yeah, it can take it beyond. We call it beside Scripture. So implicit in that is the belief that the average Christian cannot. Mm. Know what God would say, or cannot understand the Scripture on themselves. They're going to give a really bad understanding of Scripture, so they need the church to step in. And we're halfway there, aren't we? We are. But to say that that's the only barrier um, is a dangerous thing. Right. Yeah. So the priesthood of believers doctrine to get to that issue maybe is one way you do it. When we say the priesthood, the performers, predominantly what they're saying is we have one mediator. We have one mediator between us and God. Now, typically that's going to focus on, of course, I don't therefore, I I am saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not faith in the sacraments, per se. Even though we see the sacraments as a means of Christ being present in our midst to save us. But we we distinguish between an agent of grace, Christ, and an instrument or means in the hands of, of Christ by the Holy Spirit to save us the Word, let's say. So the priesthood of believers would apply there in that we, while we believe that we have direct access to our priests, that's the priesthood of believers, direct access. So that's going to apply not only to our salvation, it's going to apply to understanding scripture, etc. It's just we also recognize the magisterium, this, that, that God has appointed the church to be authorized to interpret scripture even as the individual is accountable to the scripture, not to the church. And that's the difference between us and Catholics. We wouldn't take something such as a people encyclical and treat it like something such as an ecumenical creed because it hasn't been tested, it hasn't gone through. Absolutely. And so we might read it and think, wow, this this shows me something about the gospel I didn't know or whatever, but we wouldn't. Let's put it this way. When I wrote the letter about a month ago or two months ago after the Supreme Court, that's a papal encyclical. That's all that is. And I would never, though... I mean, it's not papal. <laughs> it's a pastoral encyclical, if you will. But but I, but we but we the Protestants could never then make that. Uh, uh, I'm representing our tradition, this church. Uh, when I wrote that, I was representing the church. But 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 so it wasn't Preston Graham talking. It was the pastor of Christ Christian Church talking. But but and, and yes, it's but it, but it's but we would not be so. How do I say it? 
arrogant as to say that this is an ecumenical creed or an ecumenical document. Uh, because before that could happen, it'd have to be deliberated upon by all the denominations. Because we re- we believe in denominationalism insofar as we believe that that this church is not the only true church. Yeah. And it's interesting that the Catholic Church has really been trying to fuzz around that. They're going to describe the kingdom of God as being greater than the Catholic Church, but they still come down with there's only one true church, and that's the Roman Church. And that's called imperialism. I uh, thought about how to enter this conversation. Um, I, I don't know if you enjoyed this uh, this article in, uh, by John Webster on confession and confessing. Uh, I really did. I thought it was wonderful. Um, I thought it was very, it was a fresh way to think about the whole idea. Um, and and he just, he has a way with language that I thought I kept underlining the whole thing. So I um, read it several times and thought, Boy, this would be really good to, to talk about. And I guess the reason why um, I thought it was so helpful is because of uh, how I had normally heard confessions and creeds talked about. And maybe even a little of how, you know, now I've got a little ear tuned to it, hear, I hear us talking about creeds and, and confessions. And... So you all have been through, or many of you have been through theology, so if I just asked you, what do you all think about creeds and confessions, you're going to give some pretty good answers. Um, so maybe I'll play the, uh, ask you to play the skeptic a little bit, and just ask, uh, what would a skeptic, um, what would a skeptic say about creeds and confessions? How, how would a skeptic understand it? You're using the traditions of men instead of, uh, instead of the Bible. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yep. And, yeah, you hear that? You're using the traditions of men instead of the Bible. Um, what would be wrong about that? Well, it, well our creed says not, not to okay. depend on it. <laughs> All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, and then... We're building that consensus. I, you know, I, I think of it like um, would we say um, instead of studying uh, math, I'm going to develop it myself in my own little world. Yeah. Instead of using what people have developed over many years and Good. understanding it. Good. Redevelop it. Yeah. You hear? You hear? I mean, sort of implied in that is that humans have been developing. And what? What is? What is confessions then, in that view? In that view, a confession is just a snapshot of how the church has tried to develop its theology, has created an understanding, a grid. How about others? Other people who, just kind of a skeptic's view of creeds and confessions. Bible and the, the Bible like so clearly says like you absolutely shouldn't add any any words to this. Okay, so in addition, I'm getting into the Catholicism question that um, maybe it's adding to Scripture, maybe even it's clouding how you understand Scripture. Other, I mean, I do, I do want us to think about this. I'm, I'm sort of just. Shake, I want to shake it a little bit on our understanding of it because Webster comes from a just such a completely different perspective that it it does wind up um, 
it, it, I think it reframes, but it hits on, on a lot of these weak, weak legs in which we, we, um, we hold up the idea of creeds and confessions. It's yeah. not modern, it's old, it's stale. It's, old, stale, you know, maybe implied in that from a different culture and a different time, people fighting debates. Where's the Holy Spirit and all this? Yeah, yeah. Or even, or even it's not old enough. It's too, it's too new of a thing. It's not just the pure scripture that the ancient church believed. It's these other things that we're going to. Right, right. Maybe it's something that divides different churches instead of yeah. helps come together. Yeah, right. These creeds are battle lines yeah. that are drawn to, yeah. to, to settle arguments, to, to either pick fights or to end fights, um, and to keep everybody separate at the, at the end of it. Yeah. There's a clarity in the scripture, so we don't need any help. Yeah, what the heck? It's just going to get involved and start. It's going to frame things, maybe in a in a very human way, and we we don't really, uh, you know, is not is not needed. It's like somebody, an outsider, seeing us recite a creed, you know, like we do on Sunday mornings, might look around and think they're looking at a bunch of robots. Right. Right. Yeah. Why are you talking about somebody else's faith? <laughs> You're reciting some words from, um, you might as well be reciting a, a passage of poetry or a passage of, you know, some, some quote that we put in the front of the bulletin. Why don't, why don't you recite that thing? Yeah. I do want, I do, you know, I don't want us to get to the point where we're going to abandon creeds and confessions, but I do want to play that. I do want us to play that devil's advocate a little bit and to, to think about and to sort of challenge the way we normally think about what it is that, that goes on in a creed and confession. What is, what are, what's the church doing when it, when it recites a confession? What's the act? Anybody bold enough to, yeah. We're joining ourselves to the worship of the church for two thousand years and worshiping along with them. Okay, all right. It is ultimately um, so. Even that is a very human-centered thing. That you 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 give it more of a sociological. Yeah, we're. I want to have agreement with these other people, and so I want to I want to sidle up to them. And enjoy my relationship with them. My, come on, man. God's missing from this. Oh, but we're worshiping God yeah, together. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do. I'm. I'm poking at that just because so often it's we slip into the humanistic view. Well, Webster wants to challenge that. Um, so he begins, uh, and I'll, I'll begin with this handout. This idea of what are we doing when we use creeds and confessions? What's the, you know he would talk about nature and function of um, of creeds and confessions in the life of the church again not just individuals not just uh, sort of even tradition in general but in the life of the church listen to this description he he calls us to make a theological description not a sociological description listen to this definition confession is that event in which the speech of the church is arrested, grasped, and transfigured by the self-giving presence of God. 
What is that telling you a confession is? It's laying a foundation, a place to begin. Uh, tell me what you mean by that, because that, 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 that um, what do you mean by a foundation? Well, you build up from a beginning point, it's a beginning point. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I I would say that 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 still sounds like we're creating the beginning point. What is this? What is this definition saying? What is the act of? It's not the church. It's not some people coming together and creating a tradition, as if saying, you know what? I'm going to create Presbyterianism, and let me start make a confession, and that'll be the good constitution of us, and then we'll build up from that, and all the different doctrines that'll flow from. You know, and, and then we'll have a church. That's not what's, what he's saying. I hear what she just said also to me. That as I learn, as I begin to learn about God, the creed gives me a kind of foundation to, to begin that learning process. Yeah. Okay. Reading with the church sort of thing. Yeah. I don't know if that's what she meant. Okay. That could be a different sense. It's not asking where's the origin of truth. It's, it's really getting to the experience that we have as Christians. Yeah. You know, we catechize our kids. They could, they could probably say what she said, and that's right. what you're saying yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm trying to, to hit the provocative yeah. angle on this for a reason, and it, and it really is to say, listen to what he's saying here. It's the event in which the speech of the church is arrested, grasped, transfigured by the self-giving presence of God. Is that how our speech as a church is not, this isn't, the confession isn't us. It's not us saying things that we just decide to create, but it is God acting on us. God has acted on us and transformed us. And if anything, it's a response to God. Not, And so um, immediately that throws us not into a sociological understanding of creeds and confessions. How did, as if we could step back and say, you know, there was God working in this, the Holy Scriptures, and then at that period, then the church is sort of on its own, without anything, and God is not even here, but we're just dealing with the artifacts of God. And we now live our lives trying to piece together the artifacts of God in the life of the church. And let's say God's now active in our lives, and that produces in us confession. What is your definition of arrested? Well, I, I think from that it's it's saying that it was going in a particular way and conversion in some sense changes it and uh, stops it in its tracks. It stopped, grabbed, and changed. Yeah. That, that would, it would be conversion in, in ultimately, and, and that's the, the character of the church. Can I? Yeah, go ahead. I was trying to really think about this transfigured and it's the confession it's, it's a unifying thing and I'm wondering if it's uh, you know, God working through that confession that unifying statement together to, to really uh, create the body yeah right yeah exactly exactly it's our it's our existence so um, human history transfigured by the spirit not some social creation. This doesn't discount the human human history, but that the history of creeds is part of that sphere of human life invaded and annexed by God 
and characterized by astonished and chastened hearing of the word and by grateful and afflicted witness. All right, so there's a lot in there. I don't want to unpack the whole thing because that would take up a lot too much time, but, but it's this idea of rather than just saying it's, it's God did stuff and now it's the history of Christians dealing with the artifacts of God, it's, it's now the history of God dealing with his church and the church responding to this gospel and, and being transformed by the word. Um, and in that sense, one, primary, one of the primary and defining activities of the church is the act of confession. What makes us Christians is this response to the gospel. We're not Christians independent of the gospel. We're Christians because we, we've responded to the truth of of God's word, um, and it binds. So that's that's maybe the character of it, but it also has a function of binding the church to the gospel. Creeds and confessional formulae exist to promote that act of confession, to goad the church towards it, to shape it, and to tie it to the truth, and to so perpetuate the confessional life and activity of the Christian community. Um, what happens when a church doesn't have a confession? I mean, we talked about that. I mean, it's sort of last point. Many of you said other things will start to drive what the church is, is about. Um, it is, in some way, a professor of mine used the analogy of tying a boat to a dock. You know, you, you die, you, your boat's going to stay there. When you say you don't tie it to a confession, it can drift. And you, however much it, it is still there existing, Without tying it, you're, you're going to drift. And so the, there's a sense in which it binds it. But he also wants to say the creed is a good servant but a bad master. This would be the difference between Catholicism. It assists but cannot replace the act of confession. We don't use the, the creed as a substitute for uh, making this act of belief, but it aids our belief. When we do when we do the confession of faith in the worship service, you're not saying, "Oh, good, I don't have to believe this stuff." Somebody else has believed it, and so they're we're now just saying what they believed. Um, but it, it helps and assists us to give words to what we really um, believe. Um, and he has this nice little: to confess is to testify, and to testify with a bit of noise. <laughs> that it's a, there's a public aspect to it as well. Um, what, what about the no creed but Christ uh, mantra? When a church tries to do without confession, it endangers its relation to the gospel. Just as church life is threatened by misrule, arbitrariness, or pollution of scripture, sacraments, and office, so too without formulation in creedal texts. He's saying that, you know, we worry about corrupt, corruption in a lot of ways uh, through misrule of the church. But um, we'll have, if we just say no creed but Christ, chaos will reign. And again, we, we just sort of had that conversation, so I don't get too much into it. Um, his definition, so in pages sort of that in between of 73 and 74, he gives a very detailed, long uh, definition. And then throughout that whole section, he sort of unpacks each clause. But to, to just state it here, a creed or confessional formula is a public and binding indication of the gospel set before us in the scriptural witness 
through which the church affirms its allegiance to God, repudiates falsehood by which the church is threatened and assembles around the judgment and consolation of the gospel. So anything in that definition that you thought was interesting, noteworthy? I mean, he does spend a, several pages of the rest sort of unpacking all of that, but... I think one of the things that, I mean, like the idea of the binding indication of the gospel, back at the, he even, in the very first paragraph, was talking about that once we're saying this, then we're left, the church is lifting up to its voice to what it must do. Like, there's a response. If I believe this, yeah, right, it changes right, right. things. There's a, it does, yeah. That's, that's right. I live differently if this is what I believe. That's right. Very different than, say, um, I'm a good student. I want to. I want to know all the right doctrines to believe, and have and be on the right side. But this is doctrine that now transforms our life. That says if I'm actually going to voice this when I say it, um, it's got implications from mon- from Monday to Saturday, not just on what happened on Sunday. Huge. Yeah. That's a, a point that Webster really brought home to me. Mm-hmm. That um, that it's not just saying of the words, mm-hmm. but it's a commitment to act. Mm-hmm. That transformed how I would see what we say on Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. There's this little song that says, Let the redeemed say so. There's that spirit in that song that I think y'all are talking about. This, if you believe this stuff, it's it's it needs, it should be. Uh, Professed, proclaimed, acted upon. I yeah. don't talk about. I think that's. I love that little phrase. Yeah. Say so. And I think that's probably the the blessing of the creed and the the danger of it. The danger is that just as he says, it could become a substitute for belief. Um, it's a good servant, but a bad master. It must never be the thing that that we just hold up there as the thing that our church has. But it's what. It's, it serves our act of believing, of, of confessing. Yeah. I, I think you were saying this, but do we really want to say that other churches have no creed? Isn't it just a different type of creed? Yeah. It's just right. that it's often unspoken, yeah. it's formalized, and it's loosey goosey. Right, but when they make that, when they make that, yeah, the, 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 scary, the scary thing is, right. of course, it, it, is a, it is a creed. But when it becomes unstated, and when the public action is no creed, when they when that's what they say, of course that that is a creed that sells. But everybody, the the ambiguity of what what we actually believe is left up to understanding culture of how how this church operates, and that's a very that's a very scary thing. Other things drive it implicitly, and you're picking up on it. And it can be very cruel and and uh, confusing as a believer to say it doesn't serve my belief because it doesn't help me to engage scripture in Christ. Yeah, just to, I, I want to relate what you said, what you're saying, what we're going to do later. I use that logic a lot when I'm talking to a, a non-creedal person, and I'll say, "Whoa, hold on, you have a creed um, in everything way that you just described it." But what we won't want to say is. You don't subscribe to a creed. There's a difference. There's a difference because there's no act of subscription that the body. 
There was no act of adopting this to say, yes, this is what we all believe. And so that's huge. You know, that there is this implicit creed, but it's not yet a subscribed creed. And I think what he's describing is the act of subscription is an act of owning it, adopting it, and therefore being transformed and, by it. And it's part of being the church. That's and, and a Christian in the church is what we do. Now he's a really nice distinction. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone has a creed, but not everyone has subscribed to a creed. And I think that's exactly the point that Webster's pushing. And and we'll we'll end on the binding piece. That'll be the last that last thing we covered. I think that he he'll say some really uh, wonderful things that are we want to want to think about. This last point, E, is uh, on the front front page is really important, especially when we, we think of these creeds and confessions as as um, as these wonderful uh, landmark things in, in the church and in church history. And however much I I agree with with the, their their greatness, it is not a static document. But I, uh, confessing itself is not a stac- static document, but a dynamic for reasons we often overlook. The Reformation, Reformation is needed, not the Reformation. Reformation is needed in order to keep in step, not to keep in step with the world. Why on earth would we want to do that? <laughs> but in order to make sure that we are properly out of step with the world and therefore trying to keep pace with God. You see what he's saying there? That we can't just leave the creed as a static thing when we need to reform, but... Our reform is not saying, let's update this to meet the needs of today in some crass way. You know, there's a couple ways you can think about that, but his, his point is that we need to do it, we need to reform it so that we keep in pace with God, not with the world. Theology, and this is why he calls it the apostolic task, is not, in his, in his mind, it, the apostles are not reinventing new things, but they're representing what Christ has said. They're delivering um, that witness. Um, so I, I categorized um, the next couple of sections here with my own ways I saw what he was doing. And some of this is, is really the reason I started the way I did about the skeptical view of Christian confessions. Because I think he does do a great job of attacking wrong assumptions about the function and purpose of creeds. Um, it is not to define us. It isn't to define what we believe. The act of confession or originates in revelation. He says, confession is not primarily an act of definition. It is rather a thankful, praising, self-committed, self-committing acceptance of God's self-revelation in Christ. Now, this isn't to say that it doesn't bring definition and help us to understand with clarity some of these things but he's saying that we're not defining Christology when we start giving a doctrine what we're doing is responding to the uh, and thankful praise and accepting the Christology that is Christ um, it, and we've already talked about this it can't become a, a possession it can't bypass the act of confessing and this way, it's also, which I, it took me a long time thinking, he says it's not spontaneous. What does he mean by it not being spontaneous? It means that we're not creating this stuff. When we, cre- we create a thing, that we say its origin is in us. But it's not spontaneous. But it's a response to the gift. It is the act, 
It is an act of the church, which follows upon an act done to the church. Um, and then he says, so it's not just a response to the grace of God, but it's also a response to sin. Every time you confess, every time you say this is what you believe, you're also saying no to what the world believes. Boy, that's huge. That, that has massive implications for our Christian life. Um, when we take a stand for Christ, we are taking a stand against the idols of the world. Um, not a, it's a point B, it's also not a fixed response to settled doctrinal disputes. Which again, Emily, you brought that, that point up that oftentimes it is, is used as, as battlegrounds. Um, we sometimes think confessions represent capital in the bank or a fixed standard that exists to settle arguments. Oh, you said that? Oh, you know that that breaks the Apostles' Creed or that breaks the Westminster Confession. Um, now, I think we want to say, whoa, hold on, that's a good thing, right? We want to use these creeds and serve them, but they exist not, um, not as something that is done and fixed to settle all disputes. We can never reach a point where we can put the confession behind us. It's a, it's a recurring event. And so we, we constantly have to go back and rethink um, these things. That's why ecumenical creeds are good, and I think they show the wisdom of, of the church, and the church for, for a thousand uh, plus years have uh, said yes to these things, so we don't we don't move much to we take on a whole lot to challenge any of that stuff but it's also not scripture um, and we need to be careful um, with how we understand these things the, the point of them is not to um, to say that they're capital in the bank um, that we don't have to now engage that thing it's already done with it's not boasting of authorities or a desire to win it's not uh, as a skeptic would say writing history from the winner's perspective. You know, if you do a lot of, um, I've done a lot of New Testament studies and early church history, and there's constantly the, uh, the myth out there that's stated as true that there were multiple Christianities in the first few centuries. Has anybody ever heard that? There's multiple versions of Christianity. Well, how did we get the one that we have now? Well, they were the winners. They were the political, <laughs> you know, people, but... Webster's saying that confession is not, is not um, us trying to formulate something to defeat uh, other parts of the church, but it is a response to what God's truth is, and that will in and of itself be a no to sin, but the purpose of um, doing it is not our own self-assertion, as if we're creating our, our, our own... Uh, political platform. Um, you must not be brandishing a weapon in the church's face, is the other, uh, the way he, he puts it. Um, yet because it is public, it is inseparable from conflict and affliction. It is to enter into the revolt that's against the word and a denial of untruth. That's, so all that about controversy does not mean that it isn't there just to to be used in settling disputes, but it's not settling it between two factions. It's settling between God's word and untruth. Is that clear to everybody? Because I think it could have gotten muddled if, it, if you just leave it without the other. Um, 
It can come in, but it comes in as a servant of God's word. Um, it isn't a program platform of a manifesto to mobilize forces. Confession is attestation, not self-assertion. The creed is not set up as a party banner to read the gospel in the fellowship of the, uh, but to read the gospel in the fellowship of the saints. Um, and it does not represent, it does not replace scripture or our need to interpret. We're going to get to this a little bit with the next thing we'll do with um, trajectory, but and even we talked about this with the Catholicism question, but. Uh, Webster writes, it's not a replacement for, supplementation of, or improvement upon Holy Scripture. They are not even a non-negotiable normative reading of Scripture. Um, now, again, he's going to qualify that with an important qualification. But the Catholic, this is where the Catholic argument would be to say, these creeds are our access to Scripture, and it's authoritative, and you cannot understand the scripture without these categories. Webster qualifies this to say we must think of the creed as an aspect of the church's exegetical fellowship of learning alongside the saints and doctors and martyrs how to give ear to the gospel. But such fellowship is fellowship in a task which is also ours now. The creed is not a substitute for the church's reading of scripture a sort of achieved exegetical steady state. So if you remember that, um, was it a triangle that Preston showed, that the angle of the magisterium, the scripture, the tradition, and us, the interplay there? That's, that quote is exactly that, is, is saying, if you just said that the, the creed was our access to scripture and our interpretation of scripture, um, then it absolves us from the ability to actually wrestle with Scripture itself and to, to respond to it in confession. We're just going to use what the church has always done. And that's why, you know, frankly, um, to make a broad statement, many Catholics aren't going to do a lot of exegetical work in Bible studies. And that's just, it's not everybody's. But, but there's, the church is telling you what I'm believing. We want to say that the church is helping you Frame your understanding and, and guiding you as in the exegesis, but it's them, it's it's brothers and and mother, fathers and mothers from previous generations exegeting, but that doesn't absolve you from now exegeting and joining that conversation. So I think that's a, there's a wonderful understanding that creeds and confessions um, bring us as part of this much larger conversation to how how you understand the scripture. It may guide, chasten, and correct our reading, but it cannot absolve us from the, rep the responsibility in the present. Um, yeah, go ahead. Just a, a, re a recent book came out, uh, Justin Holcomb. It was mm -hmm. Know Your Creeds Confessions. Yeah, One well, of the just things that. that he says, which I don't know if it's saying something different or maybe saying something similar in a different way, is he says that he views the creeds as boundary markers, as if they were lines at which the church can say, if you're outside of this, you're not Christian. Whereas the, the confessions are the ways that individual churches color in between those, you know, within those lines. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about that sort of idea? Because it seems to be in many ways different than what Webster is saying here. Webster 
I think, I mean, I know, Hulk, I've read that book, and, and Holcomb quotes Webster a lot in that book, actually. He quotes this article. Um, but I would say that, uh, that while that's true, and that does happen, and that's not a bad thing, Webster wants to say that that's not, if we just think sociologically of what's going on here, that that's not what's happening in creeds and confessions. Um, it's not. It's not simply that, but it's. It is our interaction with God and how they're used with that. And he's warning against using them as weapons in the church to do it. It could be a guide to truth and untruth, um, but in themselves to say, okay, you're not a Presbyterian because I've got the Westminster Confession rather than because the Westminster Confession is an exeget- it represents people engaging scripture and doing exegesis. So it, it's maybe more nuanced to say that, but I think the, the framing is a theological framing rather than a, a, just a, an interaction. So in practical terms, yeah, that, that, is, that is often how we, we know heresy and truth. But heresy is always defined... Um, by scripture in that. We need to be careful in in um, how we use these, these creeds apart from that as if it can be detached in some way. Um, I also heard you say he distinguishes between creeds, creeds and confessions. Yeah. I, I guess that feels to be an artificial a, a creed is a confession. <coughs> confession is a creed. I think what you probably mean or he means is these ecumenical creeds. In other words, a type of creed that is meant to define Christendom versus a type of creed that's meant to define much more holistically, uh, you know, what this particular branch of Christendom affirms. I don't, I don't know if I agree with it or not, but it's, is that what you're saying? He's saying, yeah. yeah. It, it, you're probably, if you're looking at it from a historian's perspective and just sort of taking God out of the thing, it's probably an accurate way of, of uh, describing what has happened. Um, but that's not prescriptive. Yeah, I think that is a good... I, I, I do agree with you, Kevin, that that's... A better way to define creed has to be... It's, I also want to use the word ontology of it. Mm-hmm. It's, what is the essence of a creed? Mm-hmm. It, is, it is the exegetical consensus of mm-hmm. the church who is always going to the scripture, always trying to form consensus together as to what scripture mm-hmm. really teaches. And um, once you, yeah. I don't think we want to lose that. Yeah, once you see it as the... This is the platform, like a political party, to say, okay, this is our platform, and whoa, you spoke against it, and we, we've really detached it from and, and the, the Holy Spirit working through these people right. exegeting scripture. And the value of that, that, uh, that triangle that you referenced, the, uh, the little theme there, is we're all, re- the tradition represents the whole church. It's not, re- you know, the magisterium represents the denomination, if you think of that triangle. So. Yeah. So, yeah, we're all reading it together. I mean, yeah. I'm reading it with the Catholics. Yep. Even if I will come into a particular creed or confession that is representative of a denomination of the tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, but there is a the tradition you know, mm-hmm. um, that's passed down by the apostles. Mm-hmm. And we're all reading it. <coughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and there's a consensus, and it is important. I think one of the values of the Gnostic, the recent... Gnostic sort of infatuation is it, it's actually helped unify the tradition a little bit. In that within modernity, we atomize the tradition into all the denominations. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, when you hear when you think about who we are in relation to Gnostic, mm-hmm. yeah. it basically turns 
every belief we have as a tradition on its head, literally. Yeah. Yeah. The serpent now is really the, the hero, mm-hmm. literally. And so when you see that, all of a sudden the Catholics and the Easterns and all of us are going, wow, we share a whole lot together. Yeah. I mean, you know, the whole construction of Christianity, we're almost 80% in agreement yeah. with, with the Catholics. Yeah. If you were to compare it to the pagan religions, yeah. or to you know, say, all the Eastern religions, or all the you know, Gnostic religions, it's unbelievable this yeah. year. Yeah. We all agree that the circle is bad. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And that's a pretty major thing between us and, and say, a lot of these pagans, who, who see that what was being tempted, at the fun, at the, at, at, I, don't, I don't want to get off too much on this, but just to this point, at the core of what was being tempted in, in Eden was that we rid ourselves of, of God's uh, being other, and we see God as in, in, with, and through all of us. That's that's Easter. Yeah. That's pagan. That's yeah. all this other stuff. And and, uh, and and we stand with even the Eastern Orthodox Church, with the Roman Catholic Church, the West and the East Church of Jesus Christ, yeah. all stands opposed to that definition of God in, in relation to humanity. Yeah. There's something that, yeah, there's something that we can all stand up and say, this is Christianity. Yeah. And and whatever type of labels you use and vocabulary you use that might be similar, uh, there's a there's an essence of it that uh, we can all say, oh, okay, that's not, and this is. And creeds help us uh, to articulate that, but it, the creeds aren't the thing itself. They are the belief that, that articulates it. Amen. So I think that's really, that, that little triangle really is a helpful Yeah. And coming yeah. from him, see, he was, that was a really beautiful concession, though, from the Roman Catholic historian. Yeah. He's saying, you know, we all share the tradition together. Yeah. Frame has a, uh, Frame was, uh, John Frame taught me in that, but he, he works in triangles all the time with that. But that was this, it was the scripture tradition. His was present community, which was, uh, which, uh, us, scripture tradition, present community. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, Preston addressed okay. okay, so uh, the third the third section here is this idea of dead orthodoxy, and have, I, I'm going to make the assumption that many of you have heard that term before. Um, what does it usually mean, and can it exist? Is there such a thing as dead orthodoxy? What is it? What, when people make that comment, what are they usually saying? Has anybody heard that comment before? Okay, they're going to be here. One person. Church. I've never heard anyone outside of. I've never heard anyone say, "Oh, that would just be dead." Like I've only heard about it spoken against in this church. You know? Oh, really? In in CPC rather than other things. Okay. Not CPC, but only like theology class and stuff. I've, I've never okay. actually heard it. Out well, before. yeah, I can't. I don't like talking. The con. The maybe maybe the word itself, but there's. Um, it really kind of was popular in the night in the revival movements of the nineteenth century. Uh-huh. I mean, that's where the concept really comes from, is this sort of fitting accusation against the mainline church that they were dead or They had the right creeds, but they were dead. It'll, it'll pop up. It'll pop up now and again. And it's usually certain people that get targeted um, by that. But it usually means that, yes, you've got all the right doctrines, but, you know, the Holy Spirit's not there. Or there's no... There's no um, there's no real fire there. There's no belief there. There's you got the forms, but you got no Christianity there. Um, 
And, you know, he, he sort of plays with this idea, um, doesn't creeds, don't they undermine authenticity? How would you respond to that? Do creeds undermine authenticity? Well, why do we put that creed up there and say, you know, use that rather than saying, okay, you know, let's, why don't you all share what you believe? Let's all just, you know, not, we'll do, take it one at a time, we'll do it orderly. Why don't you just do that? Why do you, it's, isn't that the more authentic way? What would you say to that? Individualism uh, deny the church or negate the church concept, the communal concept of what we believe. Okay, okay, yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, definitely. This, this would be good. Yeah. Well, my response wants to be both and. Yeah. You know, I want to say, okay, you're right. Uh, heat without light is always a bastard form of Christianity, and light without heat is always a bastard form of Christianity. They're all. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is getting too much. Well, but you see my point. In other words, there's a kind of there's something wrong with both. You know, you, you could you one of the things that attracted me actually in this denomination is it has a it, it shares a history of both revivalism and reformation. Mm-hmm. And so the idea and the phrase that I know Terry Geiger used to push and it's in our bulletin still to this day, if you look at the back, somewhere in that little statement where the creed is, is that um, where we have our six school values. Anyway, if you look at the very beginning, it has this concept that the dead orthodoxy, you know, is is you know the, the creed without revival is dead orthodoxy. Revival without creed is fanaticism. Yeah. And and what we want to say is you want both. You want heat and light. You want yeah. paradigm and power. Right. And so I think it's a valid critique on the one hand that you could it's 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 certainly the case that you can adhere or subscribe to a creed and be dead right. insofar as it's not transformative in your life. And the vice versa. You can be transformed by lots of all kinds of, of ideas and revelations, but if it's not regulated by Scripture, then it's fanaticism. So, yeah, so what Webster wants to say is the problem is not the confession. Right. The problem is you. <laughs> Like, it is, the dead orthodoxy is not the result of having a creed and confession, which is what Kant's critique was, which is what Kant says, you're, let's, let's put this down to the, the individual conscience of the person to find authenticity and to get away from the creeds and confessions because that will promote it. And what Webster wants to say is, no, that, that, that's going to be rife with all sorts of um, self-determination, trust, uh, you know, um, rather than acknowledging the, the mothers and fathers of the faith and our sisters and brothers now. Um, the, the center of gravity, he'll say, must not become personal authenticity. Um, but his point isn't that we shouldn't believe these things or be authentic. Um, but his point is that the things which are believed have priority over the act of belief. It's more... We have to prioritize the fact that you do believe something rather than you're just an authentic person. You know, it'd be great if you're just going to express your authenticity, but if your authenticity is blasphemous, uh, don't use that as your connection, you know, as your, your statement of belief, but that needs to be corrected in some way. So he, he's going to say, um, yes, it would be unwise to defend orthodoxy by attacking the sincerity of the church of those in the church who appear to deny or compromise their profession. What is wrong with false professors is not, is not just that they have broken their oath, but they've denied the truth. 
Um, all right, and, and so finally now, uh, I want to get into the binding nature. This is, um, I thought, a really important point. We've, we've tried to frame what a creed and confession is, but what authority does it have? And when you bind yourself to it through something like subscription, and to say, I vow, as I did as a, as a minister, to say, this represents what's in the Bible, um, am I giving it false authority? Um, Webster will say that the, the, the authority is real, yet conditional. Limited but subord- and subordinate. Penultimate but not ultimate to the word. Um, there's a twofold subordination. A subordination to God, it cannot replace the presence of God, can only reach after it, and a subordination to the Holy Scripture. The creed is not merely a very good attempt at pinning God down, rather it's confident of, it, of its object. It knows God. Um, but what is the danger of not binding yourself to the creed? Um, this is a, 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 a sort of stinging quote for um, there, there are subscription debates, and they're within Presbyterians, they're within um, other traditions, and, and it's in Anglicans as well, this idea of will we actually subscribe to it and say this is my this is what I subscribe to it, or will it just be part of the tradition? Um, and some would trace the mainline Presbyterian denomination as part of its um, headlong drift into um, liberalism was its detachment from subscription. Is that? Once you said you're no longer going to bind yourself to a confession and say, well, no, it's still going to inform us. It's still going to be good and helpful. It's going to be part of our tradition. But our, our subscription is really to the Bible, not to that. Well, uh, as my professor would have said, you, you've unhinged yourself from the dock. And now you know, you, the dock's still there. You can still appreciate the dock, but you're all the way downstream. Um, he'll say, creeds without subscription, and this is an Anglican writing, um, Creeds without subscription are hardly likely to serve the church's life in the gospel and run the risk of becoming what Anglicans sometimes call historic formularies, by which they often mean charming curios, which can be safely tucked away at the back of a prayer book. Um, And his point, again, as an Anglican, is saying that what will happen when we don't bind ourselves to it is it can become something that can be forgotten and put there and just maybe... Oh, I'm glad that that's part of our tradition, but it's not part of what informs my identity. Um, so Isn't that what false teachings come in? Yeah, because there's wiggle room to say, you know, yeah, that's that helps us and it informs us, but you know, it's not really. I'm not going to buy myself to to the words of what this thing is. It's subscription. He um, says it has the authority. We're talking about the authority, the authority of a herald, not of a magistrate. Um, and then the, how the binding um, supports renewal of the church, real governance of the church's practice and decision making, um, not by ill-digested cultural analysis, but by reference to the creedal rendering of the biblical gospel. So that's the value of the church uh, and the confession. Um, so I, I'm going to. Make a maybe, yeah, good. I'll, I'll did you have a class? Have you got the tradition of 
I was going to do a transition and just do quickly on this. You want to take a little break? All right. So you got five, and then we're going to do a real quick. You'll see. Oh, you don't want to do trajectory? Yeah, you're going to do it. Okay. I'm going to do something first. It's the different order that we talked about. Okay. Uh, before we take five, any questions about this or comments? Webster? I enjoyed it. I thought theologically framing is so helpful. So often, creeds and confessions is brought into a man-centered understanding that God is absent in the life of the church and doing it. So. I really liked it. Yeah. Um, I liked how it's, it was so cohesive. It starts with you can't can't be possessed mm-hmm. which would turn it into an idol yeah. um, and it really elevates the importance I'm so glad we did this is held in our worship every Sunday yeah. and it's so important that we understand what we're saying Yeah. otherwise it does become yeah. it is supposed to be a servant of you, your faith and your right. belief and, and really by understanding it there's, there's the individualism in it you know there's, there's the, the light, the, the heat. The authenticity, fire. yeah. There, there it is. If you understand what you're saying, it, the heat is there. Yeah. The irony is, at that juncture, in the service, for me at least, it's one of the most heatful events in the service. Absolutely. Instead of being this sort of bland, um, you know, thing that's, you know, it's really one of the most powerfully emotive, emotional experiences for me. And I think sometimes you feel there's, I think mean, part of it's because you feel so alone. You know, and then you, you have this whole congregation standing with you saying, oh my gosh, yeah. it's so powerful. And think about where it is. You, you've gotten the word preached, and you're about to partake of the sacrament together of what you believe. You're responding to the word. You're about to make this public <laughs> communion with the Lord and with, with his people. And, and that the, the explication of the faith right there. I, I never thought about this question quite so precisely, but it, it's coming up to me now. Is, is speaking of that moment of this sort of, um, uh, you know, I know one of the things we say is, you know, to become a member of the church, you have to believe in the gospel. You don't have to believe in Presbyterianism or not have any objection to Westminster or any of that stuff. So I'm wondering about the the particular confessions of faith that we speak, mm-hmm. and then we do some like text from Westminster, Heidelberg, some of these. And I'm wondering why the sessions made that decision versus going back, going, and I don't want to use like the older stuff is better, but something that's more like uh, just doing like Nicene or uh, the Apostles' Creed or something that's less. Uh, I think we worked at trying to make sure that the things we confess are ones that, that Christians can confess, right? I mean, we're not, we're not, I don't remember any creed we're doing that is baptism yeah. or govern you know of anything that that would most of the things that we are proclaiming are things that that will unite even if they come from a document that assists us in our belief but not necessarily one that you'd say oh well, I'm a I'm a Baptist they're doing Heidelberg I'm not you know um, where where does that fit in no this it's the content of what what's being confessed one, one way to answer your question and why what we've talked about today is we try to confess the tradition not the denomination per se. So the tradition is not, we do not believe that older is more orthodox necessarily. The, right. the, value, of the, yeah. uh, the value of the apostles <coughs> is not because it's closer to Jesus, it's therefore because it's older, more pure. <coughs> Quite the contrary. You know, part, The reason yeah. we have the apostles is because the church got so impure is they didn't even know who Christ was. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so you know, so there's, you know, that's not, so really what you see in our, tr- our strategy of worship is trying to, to 
you know, get every age in there. You know, to follow that tradition through the ages. We even get up to Lausanne. Which yeah, is, yeah. You know, 76, so, yeah. And so, uh, uh, so, yeah, we're just trying to say we're part of one holy Catholic church throughout the ages. And, and but the, the point also in that is that these are not polemical documents. Only the Select Westminster is, is not only every statement in there is, is the controversial battling something else. Um, there is part of what it's saying that all Christians, I mean, many Catholics can believe a, a good portion of yeah. what Westminster is saying. Um, because it's talking about Christ. and uh, So I would even say, even if all we ever did was confess Westminster, we're still confessing the tradition. Because Westminster was is, is in succession to that, that tradition. Did you say tradition, do you mean the Christian tradition? Yeah. Yeah. The way that triangle was. The tradition, and there's the... Oh, oh, that's okay. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. We're going to go into some scripture real quick here. Um, but before I do, I, I think there was a, a beautiful way to illustrate something that I want to show you. Did you notice how how much uh, Kevin with Webster was describing confessionalism in a, in a manner that was um, experiential, if I can use that word, or subjective, or the way of, in other words, confessionalism, I, I love, well, let me get some of this language here that you used. Um, where was it? Right at the very beginning. That stuff about presence. Did you see that? Where was that? First line. Confession is that event in which the speech of the church is arrested, grasped, and transfigured. Do you hear that language? That That's not didactic language. Even though we believe the creed has a didactic element to it, or a teaching, or a, or a declarative. So on the one hand, you can think of the confessional Confessionalism is a declarative concept. You're you're proclaiming, you're declaring, you're teaching, you're you're explaining. Uh, a word that I like is paradigm. Uh, a confession is a paradigm, uh, a body content that defines reality, if you will. Right. But I was impressed with how much Webster is putting other kinds of language to it. It's not just a paradigm, but it's a power. Do you see that? How there's a lot of power language in here. A lot of, you know, this transformative, experiential, subjective. And it dawned upon me, and then later on, when you hear the, um, when you go down to page three of his handout, uh, he's talking about, where was that? Uh, it was, uh, was that stuff that he was talking about in terms of dead orthodoxy versus alive, and there's something... You know, is that the subordinate to God decree cannot replace God's presence? It can only reach after it. So there's something about mediating Christ's presence. It can't replace Christ, but it's mediating it. It's just reaching for it. It's wanting to experience it. And so what I want to show you is a little thing. It made me think about this, something that I put together a long time ago. Because I want to go back to that earlier thing, and then we're going to move nicely to subscription. We were talking earlier about the difference between covenantal and, and temple and, and words I would have you associate with that in terms of the way that, that sort of the effective words of, of those is if covenantal is paradigm then temple is power you see why? I mean covenantal is this sort of it, it's, it's, a, it's like I said it's a, it's a contract it declares, it, it teaches it, it establishes uh, in a kind of didactic way here are the terms, you know don't do this. If you do this, here's what's going to happen. If you do this, here's what's going to happen. But it's all very much objective 
and, and, and so that, that preserves, though, what we call the gospel, because the gospel is based on there being an objective transaction that does not include us, our works, our feelings, nothing. It's an objective transaction between God and humanity vis-a-vis the covenant executor. It all happens, and we're just watching it. It doesn't, there's no power affecting me in terms of an immediate sense when Christ is on the cross. I'm just an innocent, passive, oh my God, kind of a bystander. Look what's happening for me. This son, in a contractual relation with his father, going, putting himself under his father's justice so that justice could be satisfied and by faith in what he did, over there, way over there, objective, not in me, not in me. The cross wasn't happening in me. It wasn't happening to me. It was truly objective. And therefore, it becomes a paradigm. It becomes a, uh, something we talk about. We declare the cross. You right? We preach it. It's a message. But then, what happens is based on what happened there, at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit brings it, and, and the whole thesis of Acts is the reformation of the temple church. Remember, the first thing they did is get that 12th disciple. The first thing you're told is they're centered around the temple. All through it, it's about temple formation and the coming of the Shekinah glory that was of the Old Testament temple down upon the people. And yes, a Shekinah glory that now has recreated the temple with all nations attending. That's Pentecost. And now there's the power of the temple. The presence of Christ's cross effect is now being mediated into our very presence. So if you take those language, again, you can call it light, covenant, heat, temple. Paradigm, covenant, power, temple. Message, covenant, um, transformative experience, temple. You see, it's all there. And um, if you if you look at that, then then it's what what I've tried to help you see are those two poles. But then I've said there's these three offices: office of Christ, prophet, priest, and king. And what I want to illustrate is the way in which those offices are both. There's a covenantal aspect to those offices, and there's also a temple aspect of those offices. Are you following me? So if that will if it'll help you, let me find a, a little sheet that I've got here. And I think it's way down here at the very bottom. Let me see. Nope, not that one. Oh, I'm sorry. I had to have this pulled up before I got up here. I think it's this one. So this is one. Not that one. It's not this one i got to give up. I know I had it pulled out for you. Oh, man. Where is that baby? Okay, well, I'm not going to waste your time. But what it showed you is it was a document. I'm, I'm dying to find it here. But it was a document where you would have a picture and you'd have covenant, temple, the way I just defined it. Then you'd have prophet, priest, and king, or confessional, um, sacramental, and communal. And then what we did is we said, okay, in, in, in the covenantal sense, this is what the confessionalism looks like. In the temple sense... This is what the confessionalism looks like. And I'm trying to illustrate to you that, that, so if you think about it, the way that Webster, now I'm coming full circle, the way that I like what Webster did is unlike anyone I've read, actually. 
he's really emphasizing what I would describe as the temple, the, the, the temple aspect of conventionalism. It's not that he's diminishing the, the covenant aspect at all. But he's, he's talking a lot about the transformative aspect, the participational aspect of confessionalism, right? That's another two words, by the way. If, if, um, if the covenant is divine law, what we call juro divino ecclesiology, the temple is, is participational. Okay? It's, it's this divine presence by participation. So law is something you teach. Temple is something you do. Now, how do you hear that every Sunday? Every Sunday I'll say this, because I think this is one of our distinctives that we try to emphasize here, right? So you're not only going to hear about the gospel, covenant, you're going to do the gospel, temple. So if you think about confessionalism and all that stuff you just talked about, there was a lot of emphasis about doing confessionalism, experiencing it, participating in it, um, how that should have an effect upon us. There's a power. And, and I say all of that as a perfect transition uh, to what I want to talk about now, which is the issue. So we're going to look at two issues for the remaining of our time. One is subscription, and one is uh, a, a recent hermeneutic that's being utilized relative to the scriptures that we think is dangerous. And we're going to illustrate it with the, uh, the whole sexuality issue. Um, and Kevin will do that part for Craig. So I, I appreciate the fact that He's willing to do that um, and all that. So with that being in mind, uh, having that in your head, let's look at our handout again. And what I want to do is go all the way to page... Y'all see it yet? I don't think the projector's on. Oh. Uh-oh. That's on. Yeah, it's open. That's weird. It's open. Does somebody want to come play with this a little bit? Yeah. While I get my stuff. <laughs> yeah. Let's see. I'm going to push power. Let's see if it's coming on now. I think, yeah, I just got it going. But see, if you could just make sure, I think it's coming right now. The power just needs to be turned. Well, you don't understand. It, when you open the shutter, usually at the, yeah. you assume the power is on. Um, the light bulb's got warm up. Yeah. But I just push the power against this. So on page. Um, Yes. Who said it? Thirteen. If you if you want to find it, if you have it, you can do thirteen. But otherwise, those of you who are here are going to see it right here if it's coming up. It's coming up. Yes. Okay. So let's talk about confession subscription because in relation to what I just said, subscription is basically um, it's one thing, as he said, to have a creed, but what makes it living? He's, he talked about it being a living document. That's another temple language. Living. Is that every generation has to subscribe to it. Every pastor has to subscribe to it. Every, and I'm doing this for you who are trained to be elders, elder has to subscribe to it. It's an act, a deeply personal, existential act. Where you're going to say before God and the witnesses of a congregation... A vow, and we're going to look at those vows, and a vow that subscribes to the Scripture and and then in relation to the confession, etc. So maybe it would help you to go to the vows first. I have them down here later, but I think maybe to tell you where it's all going to end up might be helpful. But I want to give you a little bit of what the issues are. 
So let's see here. The vowel is... This is all just the uh, context for that. There is it. Huh? 18? Could be. Yes, there it is. Thank you. 18. So there they are. Can you make it a little wider? How much wider do you want? So we can see all the words. I'm looking at all the words. You're not. No, it was cut off. No. Well, it's mostly there. Okay. It's there now. No, it's not. No, I'll try it again. All right. Okay, is that close? Nope. I'm working with the word so I can make it bigger for you, but it's kind of hard to get it all situated there. Uh, you see it, basically. Okay, it's the questions you want to look at. So when you when you these are the words. Now think about what you're going to have to do if in good conscience be able to do this. That's that's the point I want to make. Do you believe? Notice the word believe. Circle that. Do you believe the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments as ordinary or originally given to be the inerrant word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? Okay, that's a creed, isn't it? You're, you're, it's asking you, do you do you share with this church the creed? And the first of all creeds is that the scriptures are only rule of faith and practice. By the way, you know, when people ask me, um, what do you think is the most important creed, if you will, or the thing that I should, when I'm trying to discern a church or whatever, what's, you know, where does it all sort of start? And you might think, well, it would start with the creed of Christ or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Because Christ is going to be defined. It's always going to come down to what is your source? You know, if you're going to if you're going to if you're going to do religion, if you're going to do Christianity, tell me what is the source of authority for you? And you're going to want to say, God, great. The Lordship of God. But how does God speak to you? How does God lord you? When when do we see God say, Thus saith the Lord? And if you look at church history, it is uncanny. How, how predictable it is that when, if a church will subscribe to the scriptures as the only rule of faith and practice, it's uncanny how predictable it is that that church will be orthodox going on. I mean, it's right there. It drives them back to it. If you have a church or tradition, and you see the Marcionite controversy in the 3rd century, etc., that affirms a continuing revelation... However it comes, private revelations or, or whatever. And y'all want to know why we make such a big deal of that? Well, just go to your history. Because it's uncanny how that church ends up off, off the reservation. Because you just, it's that, it's that first of all, it's the first thing of all things. What's my source? When we have a controversy, what's my authority? When I have a spat with an elder, or an elder with another elder, or the tradition, where are we going to? <laughs> It's got to be scripture. It can't be this pastor's private revelations in a dream, and it can't be this communion's uh, tradition. It's got to be the word. Um, and whenever that gets compromised in the slightest, nothing but the word. So notice the language there. It's I. Do you believe the scripture, the Old and New Testaments, as originally given to be the inerrant word of God, and the word there only is very huge. That's the cessationist. Only rule of faith and practice. But notice the word believe. The next one doesn't use the word believe. The next one uses the word receive and adopt. Do you sincerely receive and adopt? Did you see that? Don't believe it. You receive and adopt it. The confession of faith and catechism of the church as containing 
the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scripture. Now that was very careful, and that's going to be a, a source of great, okay, so what does that mean in terms of subscription? I'm going to go back in history and show you what we, what, what's going on there. So the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scripture, do you further promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the fundamentals of this system of doctrine, that you will, with your own initiative, make known to your presbytery the change which has taken place in your view since the assumption of the ordination vow. Now, this is the ordination vow of the teaching elder and ruling elder. It would say it a little differently if the ruling elder make it known to your session. And that would be the only language difference here. I just took this out of the teaching elder portion. But it's the same confession. Do you, what do you notice about that one, by the way? Very different it, from the first one. But what, what particularly is different? We're, we're, we, did, we couldn't ask them even, we're not asking them to receive it or to believe it, as in, now that's a statement of faith. We're asking them to receive and adopt it. It's a lesser level. And particularly here is, we understand it as, as the general, well, the way this confession did, the, what the scriptures principally teach. They, they translate that into the system of doctrine. It's what it principally teaches. So you've got what? In our confession, 33 categories of what? It, 33 topics, if you will. And say verse 39 or whatever your, your tradition is. And that's the, it's not purporting to be everything the scripture teaches. It's, it's it as a system, as, as a, you know, what do we, what are the, in other words, what does it principally teach? And then you see what's very, a very, uh, another very, as you'll see, historically significant phrase, any of the fundamentals. Which is to say that, that now you're subscribing or adopting receiving is the same as subscribing to this confession as a suitable consensus for me acting as an office in this church to submit to. Understanding that there's, it's, it's not speaking to everything the Scripture speaks to, but it's what we consider, what the church has considered over the years, mostly driven by controversy, or mostly driven by catechism, wanting to teach what we teach our children and, and the people, the new believers, and any of the fundamentals. Oh boy, can you just imagine how that one's gone down? Okay, what's a fundamental? And who decides who what's a fundamental? And that's, of course, what's stated here. And this was a big debate right here. This last line in number two was a big debate about ten years ago. And there was a big debate between are we good faith, you know, system? Or are we good faith, uh, whole or strict confessionalism or, or subscriptionism? So you see these sort of system is code word for and this... Any of the fundamentals is code word for, and I'm obviously not answering the question because I want to put that in context. So just notice those two languages. And then finally, notice the third level. Not believe, not uh, receive and adopt, but now approve. <laughs> and, the, and the intention there is to say, um, yeah, I can live within it. <laughs> it's a little bit more of that level. Yeah, I can... I can it's, it's conceded that the Book of Church Order, or what's called the Book of Discipline, the Scottish, uh, you know, Second Book of, of Discipline, which is mostly where our Book of Order was derived from during the Scottish Reformation, it, it's conceded that it goes well beyond Scripture. 
and, and much of what it says. I mean, it's telling you, how do you form a presbytery? Well, you do this, you do this, you do this. And how do you plant a church? Well, you do this, you do this, you do this. And, and you know, what's a directory for worship? Well, here's the things that you should do. You know, and there's much in there that goes well beyond what you would describe as a fundamental of the faith, by far. And there's much there that goes even beyond... Um, Certainly nothing in it is viewed to be contrary to Scripture, but much of it is viewed to be beside the Scripture. Okay? So that now you're saying, so the, our, our, our tradition is really careful here. You see, they're saying, look, we're not, we're not actually subscribing to this or believe in this. This is not a rule of faith, the Boca Church Order. It's not a rule of faith. It's basically it's a procedural manual in many respects, but there's also some confessional elements that, that, are, that, are in it, that comes from the Westminster. So it's created to be very honest, a, a, a pretty, it can be a little messy, trying to figure out, you know, what's the difference between belief, what's the difference between receive and adopt, and what's the difference between um, um, approve. And typically, our presbytery is going to be, uh, or our denomination will be much more, you know, discerning about, say, your positions, your what you believe about the uh, the confession of faith. In fact, I'm not even aware of, of any extent, uh, any place where we're, where I hear anyone make an exception to the Book of Church Order. In other words, it's not it's not scrutinized at the level that we would a Westminster. And of course, the Scripture is transcending it all. You know what we're not going to say is, I'm sorry, uh, that's uh, that's off. Um, let me say, let's, let's say, if let's say I came in and said, look, I, I take exception uh, to Scripture here. That would never happen. Okay? We're, we're not saying, well, there's parts of Scripture you're going to... We think the whole thing, plenary inspiration is there, right? Now, when you get to the Westminster, what you're not going to hear is, is something that says, um, well, I believe the Scripture teaches... Uh, um, I'm just kind of... Transubstantiation. Okay, they're not going to hear that and say, "Oh, oh, since you believe Scripture and Scripture is your only rule of faith, I can't, I can't rule that out." No, they're going to say, "Well, that's fine. That's your private interpretation of Scripture." But what confessionalism is all about is reading the Bible within the, the consensus of the church, and most importantly, it's how you're going to govern. This is about you as an office, not you as Preston Graham. So you, Preston Graham, acting in the office of pastor, do you subscribe in your office and in your duties to the Westminster? And if not, you need to tell us where. Of course you think it's unbiblical or you wouldn't have an exception. But you're going to tell us where we, the church here, gets to decide if it is a fundamental issue that says, I'm sorry, you can't do that. Or if this is a, uh, a scruple, allowable scruple. And in fact, they can even do three things with it. And let me see up here. You see right there, those three little points down there? I'm kind of doing this little opposite way that I was going to do, obviously, but I think it's helpful. The presser can say, look, okay, we're hearing your exception. And if the one holding the view will not teach it, or will only teach it in discussions among other officers, we're going to let you heap it. In other words, we're going to say, look, so you don't you don't agree with infant baptism? Let's just say I don't know if they would allow this. Honestly, probably not. But let's say that you you said I have an issue scrupulous with infant baptism. One of their actions could be the, you're gonna you're gonna confess that to the uh, to the presbytery or if you're an elder to the session, 
And the session gets to decide, is that one of those things that says you just can't be a ruling elder? Okay, that's one option. Or it can do these, or it could be, um, we'll let you hold that, but you can't ever teach me. You know, we're giving you a a position of of influence here, and we don't want to have two denominations in one church. So that is not going to be something you're going to teach. At best, you can just say, for your own personal conscience, uh, I I take issue with this, but the church teaches, and and that's all you'd go. Whenever I've done it, you don't even know that I have a scruple. I mean, I'm here representing the church, not for us to when I preach and teach. So I want to just tell you that. Um, But that's one option. Or if the one holding the view will always teach the church's view in opposition to the exception view, which is what the other one was. Or it can be tolerated without any qualification. All right. That's one of those things that, that yeah, different people disagree. So let me give you an example. Let's say you were to walk in and say, I take exception to the language of the, the whole Sabbath day. The, you know, the idea of, of, of uh, the, the whole day is to be given to public and private worship on the Sabbath. And then there's there's a statement against recreations, etc. I don't know, but I'd say 90% of... The, I don't even know if it's concluded. There's been some debates whether it's an exception anymore, depending on how you read it. But, but I think it's still... Kevin, help me. Isn't it true it's still an exception if you don't hold that? Our, it was when I came around. Has it changed in your committee? The, the whole day? Yeah. Uh, boy, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. That, that particular issue, I don't know. Yeah. Well, let's just say I come in and say, look, I, I believe that the Sabbath is kept holy by participating. I mean, if you came and says, I don't think you have to worship on the, I don't believe in the Sabbath. I don't believe in one day set apart of seven. I don't think, I, I suspect the Presbyterian wouldn't accept that. They say, I'm sorry. That is a that is a teaching, that there is a Sabbath day. Um, and if you came and said, and you can do anything you want to do, it's a Sabbath day, but you know, I can do anything I want to do on it. That's the whole point. It's just for me to, to have my own personal day. Um, and not necessarily participate in, say, corporate worship. We're going to say, nah, I can't imagine them giving that exception. They say, no, it's it's essential that you participate in corporate worship, except for reason of mercy or, or you know, uh, emergency, whatever the other one is, necessity. But if you came and said, you know, I believe in the Sabbath, I believe that, that the Sabbath is, is kept holy by participating in, in corporate worship, but I also believe that there's a place there uh, to experience recreation. By recreation, I mean participation with my children and, and, and activities that just enjoy the creation world, you know. And it might involve boating. It might involve going out in the yard and playing a football game. It might be any kind of thing. I take exception, therefore. See, that would be an example I know of where they say, we acknowledge that. There's a pretty strong tradition within our tradition and beyond that that language came out of an era that was a little bit unique on the way that they viewed uh, the Sabbath. So that would be an example. So I, am I helping you here? So you have basically three things. You, you, can, you can take this exception, but you can't teach it. You can take this exception, and you can teach it. You can't take this exception. you got to go back to the books before you can do it in. So that's where all this is going to go. But I want you to step back before we get there, because that was my original question, which is, tell me, what's now happening to you? You're wanting to be an elder. You're wanting to be a pastor. Um, I don't think we require the WLB to subscribe in a formal way, but we certainly want them to have the spirit of it, uh, to let us know if there are areas that they would, obviously, when we do the exam with them. Um, So tell me, what's happening to you? What's this going to do? You're wanting to be an elder. But what, what effect, knowing that this is what awaits you, what's what's happening now? To you personally. 
It's gotten real. It's gotten real personal all of a sudden. You know, this isn't something you can just step back and, and sort of passively do. You know, you're taking a vow for God's sake. You know, and it's a big deal to do that. And all of a sudden, you're going to get real serious about all this. And do you see how living? What What is the effect of that upon the church? I mean, are you going to have someone up there if this is really taken seriously, as we will, that that's holding to an office and you know, just the way they view it is just trying to get through the her, her hoops. You know, i got to get through the hoops here. You know, and, and to be honest, depending on the session of Presbytery, you could treat it like that. Oh, you know, go, go get that stuff and make sure you just know how to recite um, the, the short catechism when you need to. Just recite whatever you need to. And as long as you can recite it, you'll be fine. You know? No, this isn't a... If you understand the vows, it is a deeply personal, it's a deeply, what I'm saying, it's a heatful thing. Not just a lightful thing. It's you're studying the light of God's revelation, but it's becoming personal because you've answered the question: Can I, in good conscience, stand and not only say I believe this, but then can I rule with this as my governing principle? When I'm sitting down, for instance, um, and there is some kind of a situation where you're having to give a rule, acting jointly as we've described as a session, but you're you're about to vote on something. What are, what are you voting? Are you voting your personal opinion? Or are you voting what you believe is the church's consensus? That's a big mistake. A lot of times in session, I have to remind you, guys, I'm reminding you, what we're about to do is, is take a vote. And your duty is not to vote as a person, but to vote as an office. Do you or do you not believe that this issue or position or whatever it is, is contrary to what we as a corporate community, confess to be true or false. In other words, think about how important that is. Do I, let's just put yourself in a ruling elder's position or in a pastor position. Let's say, for instance, David is a ruling elder in the PCA. I don't mean just say he is. But potentially, but hopefully, David may decide, he's obviously here, uh, to, to seek the eldership in this church. You'd have to be nominated and, and, and elected, of course, here. But if he comes to this session, think about how horrifying it would be that if what you're thinking you're doing is you're coming to a session and you're gonna, they're going to hear your, your, your views and they're going to be uh, evaluating those views based on the personal opinions of everybody in that session. That means every church you go to, man, you're in... You're in danger. So always, all the time. I even do this on the floor press I'm sure Kevin's heard me say I'm constantly hearing people making cases, and I'm saying, hold on now. Our job is not to judge this, this candidate based on what you believe the Scriptures teach. Your job is to judge this, cancel, this candidate based on what you believe we, the church, as a consensus believes the scriptures teach. Now, if you want to take an exception, you can do that. That's between you and your presbytery, and whether they allow it or not, and all that stuff. And we can do that as a presbytery to this candidate as well, whether we allow it. But the key thing is, you're you're voting the conscience of the church. That's what I'm trying to say. You're voting the conscience of the church. You're subscribing to a church uh, interpretation of scripture in so far as you exercise your office of elder or pastor. You see that? 
It's no different than what you want, I suppose. Now, if, if, if there is, if the very point of debate is, do you want to say revise the confession of faith? Now, that's a different question. Now, what you're doing is you're act, it's actually the, the motion has come to you somehow through, through the court system. Do we change the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, to say blank versus blank? Now, that's where, that's when you're going back to what is the actual body content that we're subscribing to question. And that's where you're going to say, you're going to make your biblical arguments that what we should confess to is A and not B. But once you've decided as a body politic, our Constitution, our understanding of Scripture is this understanding, at least when we act corporately, I'm going to take my personal opinion that might have voted against that and put it aside, and I'm there acting on behalf of the church trying to be a good judge. It's no different than what you expect of your judges in the civil culture. Now, that's where I've talked to someone like you, the Chris. But, but presumably, a judge is what? Ruling based on what? Law. What law? Where is that found? Uh, the law. Well, it comes from people. It comes from the people. Okay, you're getting the, But it's the Constitution, right? The, the Constitution of the United States of America or the state constitution, depending on what judgeship you're holding, right? So our Constitution, just like that Constitution, is supposed to be the determining factor for this judge and his ruling. You're not one to judge up there, and of course, I mean that. And then if, if that's debated, that's what's going to happen. So we just had this judge over in. I, I noticed the the couple that was the. the uh, y'all hear about it? There's a there's a gay couple yeah. whose children were just whose child was just awarded. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. What was it? It, 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 it was, it was a, adoption or as a foster? Was, uh, oh yeah, I don't know. If it was, yeah. So the big controversy is this judge says, no, I'm, I can't in good faith give this child to a gay couple. And, and But the law says that gay couples can have these children. And so obviously his, I guess his intent was that he's going to challenge, that's the way, he's going to challenge the law by virtue of a ruling so that he can go up the, the lengths and get reevaluated, right? But see, that's, but the point is what we're going to say is no, that, that it's going to be appealed. Because we're going to, and the basis of that appeal is what? The judge is not up there to promote his personal opinions. He's up there supposedly to rule uh, the, the opinions of the state, the, the body politic. So that's really important. Um, if you're trying to be an elder, or even if you're a WL member or you're a pastor, the idea of subscription is, is a deeply interesting thing. Because what you're doing is you are taking the responsibility to put aside your person and join the corporate person of the denomination or the, or the church. You're there as a churchman or woman. You're not there as a gram. Yeah. Just because of the way you described it, I think someone would come away with the idea that all the votes are unanimous yeah. on a session. Right. Just because of the way you described yeah. it. That, that's that's it's, it's not always the case. Yeah. And it's okay. Yeah, I mean because it's there is the there is an element of how you interpret and how you see. It's okay, but 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 again, what you're at least ruling, what you should be doing is, it, it, let's say you were to vote against it. What you'd be voting against is not, I have a private a problem with this. Right. What you're voting is, I think this is a misinterpretation of our confession. That's right. 
See, that's the difference. It's not, you know, I've got a scruple. I may have a scruple. I mean, I've been in this situation before where I've had a scruple that said, in my own mind, I'm not on board with this. But I, I, I received and adopted the confession of faith. And I was approved, I was able to have the scruple. So I can go with it. And I would even say, if someone were to come to me and say, okay, so I want to challenge the, the session in terms of their view that is confessional, because I think it's unbiblical, I'd say, well, you know, that's fine, but the session was correct in its ruling. Now, if you'd like to appeal that ruling in order to test the uh, scripturalness of it, or if the session, you know, by the way, the session could always do that. The session could decide, you know what, we think this is an issue that, that needs reevaluation biblically. So they would... I would prefer it instead of being a judicial method. There's another method of doing it, and that's where you literally bring a motion to revise the Constitution. And any session can do that, and it goes to the presbytery up to the General Assembly. You see? But I would much prefer it be done without the carnage of a judicial case <laughs> and, and done it more in that method where it's not nearly as, as hot as in the method of a judicial case. Do y'all see the difference? So let's say we're debating the, the Sabbath again. And uh, let's say that, that this person comes up and says, I don't believe in the Sabbath. And let's say the whole session agrees with that. Um, what I think I would want to do is advise the session to say, guys, I think the best thing to do is let's see if this person would be willing to table this issue for now. Let's ask this person to submit to the church in terms of the church's consensus, because that's what's on paper. We need to do that. But let's also concur that, you know, we think this is an issue that's worthy of, of, of uh, constitutional re, you know, reevaluation. And so we, we, we plan to bring a motion to the Presbytery, point blank, you know, recommend to change the wording to blank to blank in order to conform to this idea that, this, that we think. And we'll see if it goes through. But in the meantime, I would appeal to the individual member to submit to the body of Christ, as I'm submitting to the body of Christ. In other words, if, let's just say Preston Graham holds the view that there is no such thing as a Sabbath. As a member, I would submit to the church. You're protecting me for myself when I do that, presumably. And I always defer to the community and not to myself in that regard. See, that's what I don't like about some of the individualism of our Americans. It's kind of like the individual trusts the community. No, I trust the community more than I trust myself. If my church tells me this is wrong, even though I think it's right, I'm going to trust it. I'll give you another example um, in, of the spirit of this. I think you've heard me say this before. But if my children move away, and they have, and they find that the most approximate, uh, the, the, the church that most approximates what we call in the five marks is a good Baptist church, and that church says, you know, I'm sorry, I don't, we don't respect that baptism. I'm going to say, Stephen, or Nathan, or Anna, I'm going to say, look, you've, you've in God's providence and decreed by God in that neighborhood, you found this to be the most gospel-centered, faithful church in the town. So submit to it. You know, and you know what? They may be protecting you. It might be that you, know, you now my kids would know how much I've studied, I've written a book on it, the whole bit. They know how much I, I, I affirm infant baptism and all the theology that comes with it. But their father would tell them, if you've chosen this to be your local church, you submit to it. Get baptized. And you know what? In the economy of God, I think you're getting wet. Enjoy it. You know? But you know what? Your church is, is there to protect you. And they're doing exactly what they should do based on what they believe. They're wanting to protect you against yourself. 
And they're wanting to give you the means of grace, and by God, you take it. And it just might be so that we Presbyterians have been all wrong all along. Impossible? Just about, but <laughs> possible. Well, that is your least. <laughs> no, you see the point? And that's, that's what conf- I'm trying to give you the flavor of what subscription is. It's, it's a personal willingness to submit one to another. That's what it's at its heart. As the scripture commands us, submit one to another. And it's, and it's for you to know the confidence that when you engage your government of your church and, and whatever policies and rulings, they're governing you all the time if you don't know it or not. They tell you what time we worship. They tell you all kinds of stuff that we do, you know, that we don't even think about. You know, we do weekly communion here. We do this. We do that. We do this. All governing things. And don't you want those guys or those women, those guys and girls, whoever, don't you want that governing body to be submitting to something bigger than themselves here locally vis-a-vis the tradition through a very carefully personal process of every single generation since the, since apostles. Think about that. Every generation has had to make it personal at some point as they continue to adopt or to, to adopt, receive and adopt or subscribe to the Confession of Faith. Okay, any questions about what that is? And then I'm going to show you a few little little nuances that came through history. I'll let you just read the history a little bit. But any questions about what's going on with subscription? Well, let me go back to the beginning then. Let me see what we got here for time. Good, we're doing fine. Um, and where did it all begin in America? Um, so this is a big day, just a little history uh, moment for you. The Adopting Act of 1729 if you're a Presbyterian, that's when the church, our church, began in America. Okay, it began there in uh, colonial uh, Philadelphia, and um, and it basically adopted the Westminster Standards. It took out of that document certain church-state issues, but that's about it. Uh, there were certain the, the role of the magistrates, you know, king and things like that were were kind of taken out. Um, but for the most part, they they took it, and it was a unanimous uh, thing on September nineteenth. 1729. Um, he, here's what it was, and it's helpful to see a little bit of the history as you can see the way it's gone. Um, there was a long debate, and um, and here's what it, here was the. Um, let me get this thing here for you. And here's how they said it. Although the Senate do not claim or pretend to any authority of imposing our faith upon other men's consciences, do you hear that? In other words, the Scripture can only do that. But we do profess our just dissatisfaction with the abhorrence of such impositions and do utterly disclaim all legislative power and authority in such impositions and do utterly disclaim all legislative power and authority in the church being willing to receive one another as Christ has received us to the glory of God and admit to fellowship and sacred ordinances all such as we have grounds to believe Christ will at last admit to the kingdom of heaven. Yet we are not undoubtedly obliged to take care that the faith once delivered to the saints be kept pure and uncorrupt among us and so hand down to our posterity. Do you hear the tension of that? That's beautiful. They were starting right back, right back to what we were talking about earlier in confessionalism. On the one hand, we do not bind conscience. The church does not bind conscience. Whatever we're about to do here... It can't be at the level of our only rule of faith and practice, in other words. It doesn't bind your conscience. But it does bind our participating together as a church. It is how we are going to live and what we're going to teach. You see the difference? 
Thus, you set up right there, you set up this idea of personal exceptions. Right there, you began to realize that there needed to be something in the system that allows for a, for a person's conscience to be expressed and judged and ruled upon in order to, to therefore maintain, be participating in the body politic as an officer at least. And so therefore agree that all the ministers of the Senate, or that shall hereafter be admitted into the Senate, shall declare their agreement in an appropriation of the Confession of Faith and the Large and Short Catechism of the Assembly of Divines at Westminster as being in all, here's the language, essential, the essential and necessary articles. There's that system of, that language of system a little bit. Good forms of sound words and systems of Christian doctrine and do also adopt the said confession catechism as the confession of our faith. Our corporate faith. You see? And do we and we do also agree that all presbyterians within our bounds shall always take care not to admit any candidate of the ministry didn't say membership. Notice no member has ever subscribed to Westminster Confession of Faith here. All we subscribe to are five points. Five points. Think about that. Five articles of faith is what you subscribe to to join this faith. That you believe yourself to be a sinner. That you believe Christ to be the Savior. That you endeavor to the best of your ability, i.e., intention always with my sinful nature, but dependent upon the grace of the Holy Spirit and the rules of the Scripture, I endeavor to the best of my ability to walk as become a follower of Christ. Three. And then the next two, I basically, I, I do believe, I, what is that? I, uh, to, to support the work and the worship of the church to the best of my ability and to peace and purity. That I, and that's in a sense saying, look, I may have issues with baptism, but I'm not going to come here. And, and, we, and the session has, on occasions, not allowed someone. There, I can think of at least three cases that people who wanted to join the church but after a long season, we discerned that they were not capable of taking that vow. That, that for them, uh, they were going to create a faction. Because they were not able to take the vow and really make their peace with it. It was going to, you know, over a long period of time, it was clear that for them, uh, they're at, they're, they could not do that. And I, I think I remember three occasions over the last 25 years where that happened where it was just very clear that, that for the peace and purity of the church, we could not say yes. And otherwise, you see, but, but and, and then, you know, I could say there have been other instances. Maybe, maybe we hear a confession and we don't hear a person really articulate that they have come to discern the original sin in their life. If, if you mean if they understand the idea, they don't have to use the word, but the concept of, of a sin that has broken their fellowship with God. Or something like, that. but those. But that's my point. Is that they're real? They're real. They're real catechism. They're real questions, if you will. But for the most part, if you're the idea is, if you're a Christian and and you are, and you believe in the the institution of the church as as derived from God and therefore to be respected, you can be a member here. You could come as a Baptist. You could come as a Presbyterian. You could come as a Catholic. You could come as a lot of things with a lot of beliefs. And we'd say, man, we got a lot of discipleship to do. You know? But you're a Christian and you have as a birthright the privileges of a bit of belonging to the body of Christ. Because we think the body of Christ is essential. I don't think that Paul and Peter said, I've got to wait for you to, to, to get the whole order of salutes down right before you begin with, you know. But no, he said, as long as you show evidence of being a Christian, get into church because that's where you're supposed to be disciple. We're not going to. So, by the way, what you what I'm telling you, and this is a little distinction, there are some tra- traditions 
that will require every member to subscribe to the to their creed. For instance, the CRC or the or URC in the Heidelberg. We take issues with that. That's that's total subscription. And and so what we're going to say is, no, I'm not going to ask an unbeliever to to discern doctrines that that are what we would call much more mature discerning documents that take, you know, how long is it going to take for you in good conscience to be able to say, I believe in, say, election? Man, that's that's way over your pay grade if you're a brand new born-again Christian. But why would you, but we believe the church belongs to everybody. That's your birthright. It's like saying to a little child, a child, until you can subscribe to the Constitution of the United States of America, you're not an American citizen with all the rights and privileges of being an American citizen. It's crazy. So we're going to say, no, come into America and learn what it means to be an American. As long as you can take an oath, let's say you're an, an immigrant, that you're not going to do anything to whatever, the, I don't even know what the oath said, but I guess it'll have something to say. You're not going to sabotage America when you're here. Did you have a question? It's a mic. Oh. Um, for, for God, so the vow to, to uphold the truth, peace, and purity is if some, if it is not determined that the person can do that in this church, is that something that is then not believing in the gospel? I mean, if we say you can be a member here if you believe in the gospel, that seems like it's something in addition to the gospel. Maybe I'm just misunderstanding. Well, how can you be a Christian if you don't believe in the gospel? Uh, no, uh, I mean, like, okay. if you, so the vow, so if the session says someone can't join this church because... Oh, 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 that's beyond the gospel you're saying. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, because we believe that, that, that what you're asking is to be, to come and belong to a church. Therefore, you can't come to sabotage it. Oh, and you're sure, and so the session wouldn't be saying, like, we don't think you're a Christian, obviously. Oh, no, no, we didn't say they weren't a Christian, that's correct, I see your point. I, I just want to be sure that... First, I said any good Christian yeah. should be able to do this, would you say? The first three vows... Really, are your, are yeah. your relationship to the gospel? The last two, relationship. That's right. But but it's but still, what I'm going to say, a good Christian. I mean, we believe, you know, the, even as far back as the Apostolic Church, I believe the one Holy Catholic Church. And what do you mean by that? Um, you know, it, it's it. There is no. How do you say it? I mean, it's it's. There is no. Christ apart from his body. I mean, that's the argument that Paul makes. So the idea is, it is it is a necessary element of the gospel. Let's put it that way. So that's very element of the gospel. So I want to be careful that when I say that, no, uh, you've you got to be able to do that. Now, I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but, but I am saying that this is not the particular church that you need to be joining if you can't say that. Maybe that's the way to put it. Yeah, I think you're a Christian, but you have, you have so much... Of your, there's, there are certain things that you disagree with here. Fine, we're going to say. No problem. But if you can't disagree with them, if you can't be here and submit one to another, that, hey, you don't like baptism, but we're going to be doing it, and if every time you want the right to protest it, we're going to say, go find a Baptist church. Why would you want to be here protesting every time we do baptism? You see? And creating a stink. So that's all it is. Yeah. Peace and purity. Did yeah. I was just wondering if you could give a couple more examples, not violating anybody's. Just, oh, yeah. But just other examples of where you found it would violate the security of the church to admit someone. Uh, I, I don't think I've given you any examples, right? Right, that's what I'm asking. Well, I think to give an example, it would be, you mean what issue they were they had a problem with? No, no, just, yeah, something that you think is, because I'd, I'd like to hear examples of how this plays out. So, I guess what I could say, um, I'm not sure if I want to 
So just be, keep in mind that the issue was uh, the the decision, and by you know, it's a very it's not a decision that's made lightly at all. Boy, believe me, um, every benefit of the doubt is given to the people always. But um, let's say there's an issue with say uh, I mean, I'm really kind of nervous about giving because you may. It, it could it could expose who we're talking about if you've been here for too long, I guess. And I don't, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't want to do that. So to give you a real, I'm trying to give you a hypothetical issue, but let me give you a hypothetical issue that that could be very that could be very you know likened unto the issues that we've had. Let's say maybe I'll try it that way because I just want to give you at least helpful understanding. So let's just say that. Um, Trying to come up with a good one. Um, well, let's say that you uh, let's see here. Believe. Oh man, let me think here. Um, okay, I don't think we've had a case. Well, I mean, I would. I, I think the baptism thing is important. Like, yeah. just just for if somebody is is not not just they think baptism is. A, a believer's baptism, greater baptist position, is the the right position, but they're unwilling to submit to it. Yeah, I was trying to think of instances like that. Yeah, they want to say, still, you know, I still want to join the church, but you know, I'm not going to baptize my kids, or I'm, I just, I just, if you if you ask me to do that, I'm just that's going to be a big deal. Then I think it's clear to say, however much you still think if you take these vows, you really can't take these vows. Because those are issues that you just cannot submit to. Well, and the reason I wasn't going to give that example is because that's an area that has been highly debated within our tradition and our session. And I don't, I, to this day, I'm not sure I know what the position of our session is. Do we require them to baptize their children in that case? And I think in the past we haven't. Yeah. Um, and yet, but we have declared that they are under discipline. And what we mean by that is that. Not the kind of discipline. Remember, discipline has many levels now. You're going to have to start pulling all this stuff back. Now it's getting careful. What we mean by discipline is that are you willing on a regular basis to reevaluate this with us uh, with an open mind? I mean, we, we are concerned. For, we want that child to have all the rights and privileges of the child, growing up knowing they belong, growing up knowing they have the benefits of the covenant and, and those benefits described to them. And there's a lot that comes with baptism that most people may not have. Uh, it's not just about the timing issue. It's about how you view children. And how you view child discipleship, and what's going to happen in, in, in certain instances in their life, etc., etc., etc. To hear through their lives, congregations taking a vow to them, and know that it, that it was them that they, that happened that happened to all of that stuff that comes with it. But so what we did in that case is we said uh, the, it, I, this really gets into the weeds, and I don't want to get too far, but but the nature of a, a parent to a church. You have two jurisdictions now. And this is a jurisdiction, the parent jurisdiction, certainly they could do what I said I would do. I've always counseled people, if you come to this church, and just submit to the church. And we would not have an issue with you probably describing your child that you're not you're not of an agreement with the church about this, but you are in agreement that as long as we worship this church, that they should, that they should be submitting one to another in the church. And that's always what I advise. 
if a person's unwilling to do that, and, and, and as I can think of at least one instance where that was happening, and this person was very confessional and genuine and, and all of that, there was a case, but I don't know what the session would do now. We go back and forth about, obviously, it's a pretty tough decision. What we, what we have done, though, in the past is ruled that, okay, this person is still willing to submit to the church vis-a-vis uh, a continuing conversation. And I mean, I put it on a schedule. You know, we're going to talk about it, you know, regularly. And it's going to be a constant sort of, you know, burn the saddle that there's something still missing about your submitting to this church, and we're wanting to continue the discussion about that. If it's an issue that we think is of that level, again, we allow a lot of scruples, guys. A lot of them will just say, yep, that's it, it's over. That's, that's one of those things that we agree to disagree on. And, and a lot of that would come out of many of the tradition, you know, the denominational differences. I mean, I know you, you guys are coming out of an Anglican. There's, there's, I, can't, I can't think of any doctrine that is Anglican and not Presbyterian that probably this session would say, sure, that's one of those scruples. But the Baptist, ironically, the baptism is a much historically and, and theologically according to the system, it is several times been brought to the uh, denomination, can we make an exception to baptism in terms of this? And every time, it's been no. Because with baptism, they represent two very different systems. You notice that system language. They represent two very different systems and theologies about the church that reaches way farther than at what time do we put baptism on a child. It's dealing with the efficacious nature of sacraments. It's dealing with the whole order salutis. There's a lot of stuff here. So I know that we would never, with the case of baptism, I can't imagine that our church, in fact, we can't under our denomination say to a pastor who says, I take exception to infant baptism or a ruling elder, we could never say, oh, that's a scruple. Now we can say it to a person who's becoming a member. So this maybe is a good example. You're a member, but you don't have children. Or say, fine, there's no submission here required. You don't have children. So you can come and you can take exception to that. And yet, you know that we're going to try to teach you because we want you to have the benefits of what we think is truth and grace. We're going to try to teach you this. And I hope that you'll, by the time you have children, come to that position. And by the way, I'd say about 80% of the time, that's exactly what happens. It's not not a guarantee. So much of the things that keeps people from being Baptist gets resolved when they see the way it's actually done in the life of the church and not to prevent conversion and all that stuff. But to your other point, so finally the third position though is that you have children, you take exception, and what we're wrestling with is on the one hand we have a parent whose conscience is feeling violated as as the sole governor of their family. We would come back to that and say, but baptism isn't a family right, it's a church right. So who has authority over baptism, the father or the session? You see, and we're going to say the session, and that's the argument I would give. But we would also, but but the the thing that happens here, though, we say, but on the yeah, and so that's the true argument. Therefore, what I think you should do is submit, have your child baptism, and tell them privately you thought you got they got wet back then. And when the time comes for you to be baptized as a believer, we're not going to do it because we would not undermine our own baptism. But you could probably find a way to do it, I guess, or join another church at that time. but they've allowed for that because it's such a, is it really such a big deal that this is a good parent? On the other hand, you could argue, but the parent's taking so seriously their desire, right? they're very involved in their child in this decision, and we don't, we don't want to disrespect that either. So it's been a, that's been a difficult issue. The question you... would be that the session determining, is that person ever going to submit generally or is it going to cause faction? 
Well, clearly they would have to agree that even if they were to stay and we were to make an allowance for their child not to be baptized while they're here, they would clearly have to be able to take that vow about the peace and the purity of the church. And there could be, in this hypothetical example that you asked for, a case where they might say, well, I can still take this vow, but the session would say, yeah, but you're, you're going to cause... Maybe. I have an example of that, which I think this person will let me say. It happened to John Hinkson. Um, and John was a member of our church for years and a um, good member. And he took very seriously the vow to, to protect the peace and purity of the church. It became increasingly difficult for him, though, uh, with his students especially, not to teach his view of baptism. And he started to do it. And we started to talk about it. And we said, you know, as it happens, there's a Trinity Baptist getting started here. Uh, it's going to be a good evangelical, I think, at least quasi-reformed, not reformed, I think it's a reformed Baptist tradition generally. Um, and we agreed that that would be better for him. And he went and we actually prayed for him and, and prayed, you know, almost commissioned him, you know, to go and, you know, help that church thrive. And so it was all done in a very positive, good spirit. And that would be another example of that. So, yeah, it's it's hard. Right? It's hard because, it's, see, John is a, is, would see himself as a minister. And so for him, what does he do when he teaches a bunch of children, a bunch of college kids on the issue of baptism? You know, and so that's where it was even more difficult for John, which I think eventually many had to be, he probably need to go to another church when there was a healthy wooden town. All right, let's move on from that. There's only one other point that I want to make. Um, and if you look at your, your thing again, uh, I want to bring you into... The uh, uh, this is a nice 19th century uh, comment about subscription by Samuel Miller. As some of you know, Samuel Miller's probably been the most influential ecclesiologist in the for the PCA. I mean, so much of what we believe, our view of office, etc., comes from Samuel Miller. And he says it this way: Let the candidate for admission unfold to the presbytery before which he presents himself, all his doubts and scruples, with perfect frankness, opening his whole heart as if on oath, and neither softening nor concealing anything. Now that's submit one to another statement, right? And remember, we're only talking about officers here. This is not about members. What did I just do? How did I just go all the way down there? Sorry. What page was that again? Anybody have it? 15. 15? Okay, there we go. Let him cause uh, let let him cause them distinctly to understand that if he subscribe the confession of faith, he must be understood to do it and consistently with the exceptions and explanations which he specifies. So there, there it's getting into the allowable scruples issue. If the presbytery, after this fair understanding, should be of the opinion that the accepted points were of little or no importance and interfered with no article of faith, I think I, I, I wanted to read that because this is important. When I'm listening to a, 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 a scruple on the floor of Presbytery, I'm asking that question. Does this fundamentally, you know, compromise this article of faith, the chapter, what it's really about? See, that gets back to the fundamentals. I, I believe every article is a fundamental. I can't take one article out and say, you can, you can just dismiss that. And so what you're adhering to really gets to the very core of what that whole article is about, a.k.a. say, anti-infant baptism which is typically coming out of a non-sacramental view of the sacraments, i.e. it's been changed to an ordinance and not just a, not a sacrament, where there's real and genuine grace being conferred, not necessarily, not necessarily immediately, remember, but ordinarily. Um, 
then I'm going to say, you just, you just totally undermine. And that's why baptism is a much bigger deal. You'd be surprised. In some ways, in some ways, uh, the Baptist position is, is distinguishes one, one, one tradition, if you will, over against all the others. It's, it's really a pretty crazy idea from a historical point of view. Now, my Baptist friends would not appreciate that. But, but really, if you stop and think about it, it's a very marginal view of the church over 2,000 years. And it's, very, it's, a, it's a deeply fundamental issue because you really are dealing with the nature of the church in that issue. What do you believe the church to be? Is it, a, is it simply a witness of a, a volunteer association of believers or is it something deeper? Now, there are Reformed Baptists that ironically are starting to bring sacramentalism back into baptism and, and, and there's another theology, and that, and that may be a little different. But anyway, I'll just I'll go into all that. Um, and then he goes on and says, uh, No article, and should be willing to receive his subscription in the usual way he may proceed. So that's the heart and soul. Jump forward to the PCA, 19, uh, 2003. I was at this General Assembly. And this is a kind of a, a. This was where there was after about a four-year period of, of debate about should we review and how we're doing subscription. And the big issue was, I guess, what you would call good faith system subscription versus strict subscription. And at the end of the day, you had a, a rather, I think, historically accurate. Uh, if you go back to the spirit of, say, uh, Samuel Miller, etc., and the adopting that, you have a very, I think, historically accurate compromise between what it turned into two kind of factions within the PCA. This was sort of the, one of the news that did kind of told them about it. Um, and let's see if it kills you. Uh, that tells you the vote, 821 to 545. So that, I just wanted you to see that and say, wow, this is pretty hotly contended here. You know, this is a, this is a big deal. And it was. It was probably the biggest deal that our denomination has dealt with since I've been there. I think there's another big deal right now, which is the race, historical race issue, and to the degree we confess, and that's been a pretty big deal recently. But that was what it was, and here's the path, here's what it was, and I thought it'd be helpful for you to see the whereases. So this comes actually from the, 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 there are various presbyteries, this was the motion to amend BOCO that actually won the day. And so I give it to you because it's a nice way of explaining what it was. Um, and so let's just look at it. You know, the first one's just going to say what well, we all agree about the purity and peace of the church, and that it requires her to staff that her officers sincerely receive and adopt the Westminster standards, etc. Um, and not and with any of the fundamentals of the system. Okay. In other words, reaffirming what I think everybody would have agreed with. And whereas the purity and the unity of the church also requires that our leaders understand both the restrictions and nuances. I'm going to take this thing where y'all can see it all. It's at 200. I'm going to put it down a little bit. I know it's smaller, but hopefully it means you won't lose some of it. Is that all right? Can you see it? Yes. Understand both the restrictions and allowances of our standards that are derived from Scripture, but unlike it, are not the only infallible rule of faith and practice. There's the Scripture side. And whereas there's a long-standing tradition with the American church tradition, including if you say that officers may in good faith take exceptions to certain particulars of the Westminster standards, and such particular exceptions are not inimical or hostile or injurious to the more comprehensive system of doctrine, whereas the PCA's original good faith subscription position has served the church well, but recently been challenged by some who desire either a more broad, that was the more systems approach, or strict, the more tightening approach, 
And whereas the church must guard against the broad substance of doctrine subscription approach, which has no definitive meaning and leads to the candidate himself rather than to the wisdom of the presbytery to determine what areas of his disagreement with particular statements of the Constitution are inimical, what was happening there is should we allow the person, should we say, when you feel, the debate was, when you feel that one of your doctrines is out of accord with the system or with the fundamentals of our faith, you have an obligation to tell us. Okay? That was what was called good faith system subscription. And we they ruled against that, as you're going to see. They're going to say, hold it. I mean, basically, you're left to everyone's reading the scripture for themselves again. You really aren't submitting one to another. Um, so then, uh, there's the broad. And whereas the assertion the PCA was consciously found as a strict subscriptions church in 1970 cannot be sustained, i.e. that you can't have an exception, that you've got to adopt it all, all right, um, and, and blah, 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 blah. And whereas attempts to change the PCA into a board of strict subscription churches are a departure from the original position, blah, 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 blah. And whereas the inclusion of a good faith subscription statement in our Book of Church Order is needed to state explicitly what has been the understanding and practice of the majority of the PCA from its beginning, therefore, to clarify and support the original uh, ordination standards of the PCA, Blank Presbyteries overture the General Assembly the following. And here's what it was. Um, you know, whenever a Presbyterian shall omit any of these parts, it shall always make a record of the reasons for such omissions of the trial parts omitted. So that was just another statement about if they didn't examine them in something for some reason because they took the examination of another body. So that didn't pertain to it. In between that and then the next paragraph, which you see at the bottom, here's the language of our confession, our, our doctrine subscription. While our Constitution does not require the candidate's affirmation of every statement and or proposition of doctrine in our Confession of Faith and Catechism, it is the right and responsibility of the Presbytery to determine if the candidate is out of accord with any of the fundamentals of these doctrinal statements, and as a consequence may not be able in good faith sincerely to receive the the Confession of Faith and Catechism of the Church as contained in the system of doctrine taught by the Holy Scripture. Therefore, in examining a candidate for ordination, the presbytery shall inquire not only into the candidate's knowledge and views in this area specified above, but also shall require the candidate to state the specific instances in which he may differ from the confession of faith and catechisms in any of their statements or propositions. That's really big. I mean, you just can't say, oh, I don't think that was an important one. You just got to state it all. And the court then may grant an exception to any difference of doctrine. Only in the court's judgment, the candidate declared difference is not out of accord with a fundamental of our system of doctrine because the difference is neither hostile to the system nor strikes at the vitals of the religion. And so therefore there's a compromise between the strict subscriptionists and the good faith systems position. We're still a systems, but the point there is it's not the individual who decides if it's a systems. It's the presbytery who decides if it's a systems. Okay? I say all that for you who are going to be ordained here. That's exactly, this is the exact language you'd use. The only difference instead of presbytery uh, of having original jurisdiction is going to be the session. So, any questions about our subscription and what it is, what it isn't, and hopefully you see the bigger scheme of don't lose with all this tech language. What we're really talking about is how Faith remains alive and vital. That's what's exciting about it. It's really a fun process. Any questions? If not, I'm going to hand it over to... to, I want to, for the last 30 minutes, handle this other issue. Any? You sure? Yeah. Is it possible... Just help me understand this. Is it possible that someone could be found to totally assent to the articles 
but the examination process somehow fails to uncover some yeah. terrible heresy or gro yeah. gross misapplication of doctrine. So the question would be, and yes, that, that's a big question that happens all the time in some ways. Let's say someone comes up there and says, because the, the whole purpose of the examination is to see if this person really understands, not just can they assent to it, but do they understand it to the extent that they can keep it. So you may say, uh, I affirm, uh, you know, infant baptism. And I might be listening over here, I might be sitting out there, and I might be thinking, you know, listen to the way he talked about it. I don't know that he thinks there's anything that... I don't know that he believes in a sacramental view of baptism. I think he may just believe in a memorial's view. So I might say, well, do you think any grace, is there any, is, the, is grace, so I might ask a really clean kind of question like this. Is grace conferred in baptism? Now, the answer is going to be a nuanced answer, and that's exactly what I'm waiting for. And if he says no, uh-oh. <laughs> I mean, he can probably tell you, I think he's probably heard me in, in this context a little bit. I'm going to say, whoa, then let me, you mean no grace is conferred? So what do you believe happens then? What is the purpose of it? Da, 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 da. Off we go, and I, I guarantee this is going to be a, a, a little conversation. And at some point, if this person can't come around and show me, okay, maybe he's still weak. Maybe he's still nervous about things. You know, he's got deer in the headlights moment, which happens all the time on the floor of Presbyterian. And I know that. Some, some of these guys have come out of the class and I talk, I'm like having the last Presbyterian is a guy, man, I know he knew this great about assurance, this doctrine of assurance. And it came out wrong. I said, whoa. So I, I phrased it for him in a way that was just spoon feeding. I, and I said, so do you mean if someone, you know, and I went through what the implications was of what I heard, and he went, oh, no, no way. You say, so I'm going to do everything I can do to give him a bit of a doubt. And then later pull him aside and say, man, you know, I, I think you did great. Real proud of you. I know this has been a big thing. Uh, you probably need to clarify a little bit of how you talk about this issue of assurance, let's say. And here's some things I might suggest that you read and stuff up a little bit. You see, that might happen. But yeah, that kind of thing could happen. And we're, but if he's just out of it, so no, grace is not confirmed. I can't hold that. I'm going to vote against him. Right there, I'm going to say, you, you're, not, you're, not in the, in the, you're not even in the broad Reformed Catholic tradition here. And you're undermining the very nature of the church itself and what's happening there. Yeah. It's, it's also not just a one shot deal where yeah. the presbytery, right. that's not, they, they've gone through committee. The committee has asked them the questions. Many times they say, go back and study this before you can get to the floor. They've gone to review it uh, in a written exam, oral exams. So there's a process, true. Yeah. yeah. So, but. But, but it does. It does. It does happen. I mean, you don't always. You don't ask every question in the committee. So it's who knows what's going to ask, be asked out on that floor. That's the whole point of it, by the way. So does that answer your question? Any other questions about subscription? Do you understand what it is? What you're going to be asked to do? If you're wanting to be an elder, pastor, in the spirit at least, WLB leader. All right. Why don't you take us and help us understand another challenge to confessionalism, which gets at how we read the scripture confessionally. So this is the part I'm, I'm sort of pinch hitting on, and uh, I'm going to talk about trajectory hermeneutics and how that might uh, challenge us as we think about real practical issues in uh, ministry as we uh, serve as elders and uh, be members and even good Christians. And uh, I want to as a case study for this, um, the homosexuality conversation, um, and it's probably most compelling if you if you think that the reasons against uh, 
or be, to be critical of homosexuality is because it's uh, not the way that we've done it in the past, or that, or that in some way that there's it's gross, or there's there's you know that that wasn't how I was raised, or you know all those other criticisms. I mean, those things are actually really bad reasons, horrible reasons to uh, to disagree with anything. Um, but tradition is important. Not cultural. In cultural tradition, I think we have to be, we have to question. Yeah, I mean theological. Tradition. Yeah. So that's a different question. Sometimes when they say tradition, it's a cultural tradition. It's not the way I was I, I was brought up. We were brought up to to know that that was something you don't do. And uh, so I, I think uh, when when it's posed like that, it becomes a very easy target um, to to go after. Um, the, this is an interesting debate because of someone who's who's writing a, a little bit more about this is actually a friend of mine who I knew at Duke who uh, actually just now got kicked off of the faculty of Fuller because of his views. Um, and I know I've spoken about this in, in relation. He's a New Testament guy. He wasn't a PCA. Um, uh, but but he's he's grounding his perspective in the Bible, in the New Testament. And especially because I'm going through Galatians now, Galatians has been sort of a, a, the, the hotbed um, for, for finding some of this, and especially uh, the, the concept of uh, Galatians uh, 3.28, you know, in Christ now there's now no, no longer male nor female, uh, slave nor free, Junior Greek, you know, and that that formula has been a couple times. So the the trajectory hermeneutic wants to say, uh, in essence, uh, if we looked at what's going on in the Bible and in the culture that the Bible represents, we see a great movement of uh, radical challenge to the culture, and that. Uh, the articulators of this in the apostles and the first century, these Christians, as they're explaining some of this, um, they are challenging all the, the culture and the institutions that are out there, um, but there may be some blind spots that they don't see, maybe they only anticipate some of the cultural changes that are going to happen down the line, but they set a trajectory um, to anticipate where we would be. Um, the uh, Daniel Kirk, who's, who's the guy I was talking about, when he looks at, at um, Galatians, he wants to say what Paul's argument about the Gentiles was. Here were people who weren't supposed to be part of the, the kingdom of God. Here were some people who were supposed to be outsiders. And Paul's making the point that we should accept them because we see the gospel at work in their lives. Because we see the spirit moving, and that, that's Paul's, and that's that's a little of how Paul argues. Paul has a deeper argument in, in Galatians than that, but it's a little about how he argues there. That look, the spirits at work in their lives, therefore they should be the the people of God. He wants to say that's God is continually making this principle that. Um, because uh, God has accepted 
the outsider and brought them in, that we should operate with that same, in that same trajectory, in that same understanding. What do you all think about something like that? Does that make sense? Do you have questions about it before you critique it? You see what it's it saying? It's sort of saying maybe they wouldn't have known our, our point here, but they set out a trajectory of how we should now start thinking about culture. And though there's a particular issue that they were bound up in that they may not have seen past, um, slavery per se, maybe, maybe uh, all, the, all the reasons for overthrowing it are in scripture, um, but we needed to articulate it in our age. Well, an example of this, and it's the same to help you appreciate it. Today, it's often the case that you hear the rhetoric, the political rhetoric, and the rationality, and I don't mean that negatively, but explicitly, that, that the modern gender issue is a civil rights extension. Mm -hmm. Well, that's basically what you're hearing here in this rhetoric, that, you know, just as in Paul's day, there was a correction and an inclusion of women mm -hmm. um, and received the sign of covenant, baptism, remember? Uh, Old Testament, women didn't receive the sign um, of circumcision for obvious reasons, but, but I'm sure it was good. And, and uh, just as the Gentiles, who had in one generation been excluded, vis-a-vis -vis their Gentiles, let's, you know, I want everything I'm saying, I have some things to say, but you know, the argument, so the argument goes. So, so today you hear a lot that, you know, this is a civil rights issue, i.e., that what's being assumed with that is this is an extension, a trajectory, if you will, of what was right then is now right now, the difference being our culture was not ready for it, but now we are. And so you really see a mirror going on here in some ways. In, in a hermeneutical way with the scripture, with what you hear is often the social argument here in America with civil rights. Yeah. I'll bring it into the real case, which is a church that had been in the PCA, which is City Church in San Francisco. Um, and their conclusion was that we will no longer discriminate based on sexual orientation and demand lifelong celibacy as a precondition for joining. It's no longer, um, but for all members, regardless of sexual orientation, we will continue to expect chastity and singleness until marriage. Um, the reasoning of this the thrust, this is a quote from thrust and focus of the gospel is the breaking down of former boundaries of exclusion and expanding of, wel of the welcome of Jesus to all. Secondly, in light of the growing divisions within the evangelical community, um, despite disagreement in basing this in Romans 14, to stay united and do not pass judgment on a brother. And then thirdly, Christ's example of love, his call to embrace the outsider and cast down in his presence with those who earnestly seek him. And you can see this powerful stuff based in scripture. How will you interact with some of that? And, and, he, and yeah. one, to clarify your point there, notice his argument about the, the spirit. I mean, we're, we're kind of tag teaming because I know he hasn't had a chance to look at it either. Um, we'll release this handout. But I think it's a really important point that he made about the spirit. In other words, you heard us earlier say, the gospel should be as wide as the, as the, as, or the, the church should be as wide as the gospel is wide, right? So why wouldn't that apply here? Or does it? I.e., their point would be, 
if we see evidence of the Spirit of God at work in this person's life vis-a-vis confession and faith, haven't we added an additional uh, article of faith for them to become members here? Or have we excluded them based on something not gospel? There's another way to say yeah. it. Excluded them based on something not gospel. Now, again, okay, I don't know when you want to get into the, the, the critique, but anyway, you see that hopefully you're, I hope we're making enough for you to say right now, some of you are sitting there going, oh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, or you're talking through two sides of your mouth, Preston. On one hand, you say yes to the women and yes to the Gentiles, but why not the, the, the gay the homosexual or whatever? You know, yeah, you just told me a minute ago that subscription, insofar as church membership, is as wide as the gospel is wide. Are you really saying that no gays are Christians? Yeah. So you're you're getting you're getting the the why this is so emotional and persuasive, and in fact, all many of the critiques are actually really poor critiques that we would disagree. Hopefully, we would disagree with because they come out of a. Something that is rightfully homophobic. I mean, homophobia. There is thing. There is something that's there that's wrong that we would want to say is horrible. However much we would maybe disagree with homosexuality as a practice, so we don't want to fall into that. But do we have good reason to disagree with this? Well, yeah. I was a uh, devout practicing sinner, and I was uh, included into the church. And thank God the church is helping me get rid so of that. So what did, what did you just do right now in, in, in making that analogy to yourself? I was, I was accepted into God's love. And the Holy Spirit active within me is changing a sinful nature. But what did you know? But what did you say about homosexuality? Yeah, I, so yeah, I know. But you did. You made an implicit conclusion about it. Yeah, but what, what was it? Let's let's put the, put it on the table here. What did you actually say that's different than what they just said? Oh, okay. The the, the they're saying except the practice. You've made a dis- well, so now you've just you've made a distinction between identity and practice. The practice that I was involved in sinning uh, here is not something that is accepted by yeah. God. But it's, so, it's, but it's really important in, in today. It's it's really important in today's um, understanding of this issue of what you're doing there, and not to just assume instinctually that you're doing it because it gets into a lot of deep understanding of this issue uh, because some would say, well, didn't we already get past the hurdle of is this something that they grew into or decided to be homosexual and as if they chose that sin and or was it just natural who they are and all those debates, boy, do we want to go back into that whole thing? Uh, because if you look at Galatians and you, you see what happens there. I mean, I, I, I'm reading a lot of this stuff, and you just say, well, no, they didn't imply, they didn't have, the Galatians, the Gentiles didn't have to do anything. They got to stay Gentiles, and they didn't have to change uh, to become Jews now for them to get the gospel. They just received the Spirit. No, because they, they did change. <coughs> they did come to an understanding that they were sinners, and that, that Jesus was the, the person that satisfied the covenant, that paid for their uh, sin, uh, 
uh, in Sedona, was mm-hmm. the matter that they that they were that they did stay the same. They changed. Mm-hmm. Well, the, this this whole thing is very selective in its application of scripture. It doesn't look at all of scripture. Mm-hmm. Um, it equates homosexuality with Gentiles and women. Mm-hmm. Apparently, there's nowhere in scripture that says being a Gentile is a sin nor that being a woman is a sin. But homosexuality is called out as a sin in Scripture, as is lying. So, you know, are they going to now make an exception for liars? We all lie. Yeah, they probably would have said Gentiles were sinners, though. I mean, they probably would have said they were just completely off the grid. Yes, but it also, the script, yeah, if you take the Old and the New Testament, Oh, yeah, right. Jesus yeah. called them dogs. But, 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 it, but his, they also called them Christians. Yeah. yeah, I don't think I don't think Gentiles were sinners qua Gentile. I think they were sin, sinners, sinners, just like insofar as, as they were pagan religions. No, I'm, I I agree with you, but I'm just saying from this is the argument that's being made yeah. in, in, the ex, in the exegetical level as they're thinking about it because first century Judaism would have said Gentile equals sinner. That's true, and that's just. That was shorthand. You could just the boy, you know, Goyim. You got you know, that's there were you know, um, it's just gonna fit in with the sermon tomorrow. I mean, just there's there's the Jews, and then there's the, the rest of the world. And the rest of the world is just they're gone. Now, the, and then all of a sudden, it's like whoa, they're starting to have the spirit. <laughs> so that means that God's now working in them. But maybe maybe just to get into it here. What is happening, though, is to call, to, to elevate sexuality and sexual orientation, this is one thing, to, uh, to identity, as that, as that is defining um, who you are as a person, as a people group. Um, and that's a, that's, a, that's a new move, socially. Um, I, I don't think, and, and I think this is all wrapped up, you know, whoever wants to trace that, that back to Freud or, or whoever, where, where sexuality and who, who we are as sexual beings is, and, and our orientation is this primary thing about who we are as people. Um, in our society, that we've turned that corner, but I'm, but, and that makes an awkward, when we've associated it with race, it makes an awkward statement about now rejecting people rather than a particular behavior. Whether you chose that behavior or not, um, that that's been that's been the difficult battle, and we want to say, well, okay, you have a predisposition to it. People, see, some people have predispositions to all sorts of of sin. What is the church? How is the church going to see you as a person? So, Kevin, yeah. help us know because uh, I think we're getting into the debate about sexuality more than the hermeneutic issue that we need to be aware of within a confessional system. So, you know, I, you know, I think we need to start. Just because of time, yeah, yeah. we need to start talking about the issue of cessation. Yeah. We need to start talking about, you know, I think we heard some, we've heard some good distinctions yeah. here. You know, how so, do we define sin? That's your point. Right. How do we admit? Let's, let's, there were a lot of assumptions. When I was talking earlier, I, I made a whole lot of fallacies in what I said, knowing that you'd probably buy right into it. Because what I didn't say is that we would admit all Christians, you know, Every, that, that are only, you know, how do I say that? In other words, if I ask the question, is the, is the membership of this church as wide as the gospel is wide? Yes. But in saying that, I didn't say the gospel condones sinful behavior. 
if you were to come to this church under the article number three of what you confess, that insofar as my ability, I'm willing to submit, you know, I'm willing to, to seek to endeavor to follow, be a follower of Christ, whatever that language is. And then if you're willing, and if the church declares that one, that the Bible teaches that homosexuality is a sin, that's our consensus, then no, I'm not going to be able to admit you to this church. If you say, well, I disagree with that, that I can admit you to the church with, and I plan to practice it. Oops, you can't go now. So if you were to come to us as a church, first of all, let's get the position right. If you were to come and say, I'm a gay Christian, like like Wesley, uh, what's the way? If, if you were to come and say that, we'd say, okay, that's that's not determinative yet. We'd say, uh, do you believe that uh, the Bible declares homosexual activity to be sinful? If they say no, I say, okay, that still hasn't disqualified then I'm going to say, are you good, are, therefore, are you committed to practicing homosexuality? As in doing it. Yeah, why not? I don't believe it's wrong. I say, well, you're not going to get a number here. Just like that. That'll, that'll, that'll stop. Why? You see what's going on? Because we believe it's a sin, and according to your vow, you are coming into this church submitting and, and with, with a commitment against unrepentant sin. So it's one thing to come in and say, I'm struggling with homosexuality. I'm struggling with my orientation. I'm struggling to be tempted this way. Blah, 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 blah. That's no different than an alcoholic says, I struggle to drink. You know, we're going to say, come on in. You need the church. But if you come in here and say, I, I, I categorically oppose or agree with homosexuality as a practice that I can do, and I plan to do it, practice it. So I know right now a person, um, who uh, who actually used to be in this church, is not for a long time, so none of you probably know him, who has come out and declared himself to be a gay Christian, who also declares that he's a confessional Christian and he submits, and he, and he wants to live in submission to his gospel-believing church, and therefore, like Wesley, does not practice gay lifestyle. He agrees that I have the wires crossed. It's just who I am. I can't, it's just, it's the disposition I have. My wires are crossed, but I'm not a confessional gay. I'm a whatever Wesley would distinguish. Remember that in the book, if you've read it? And so, so that's why I'm going to say, first of all, yes, we can admit people who struggle with gay orientation and lifestyle. We can't admit them, though, if they are unrepentant in what we believe is a sin. And by unrepentant meaning unwilling to submit themselves to the government of the church and its position on this issue, and with the church seek to struggle against that disposition in terms of its sinfulness. Right? So if I've gotten, I said all that really quickly because I know we don't have much time. Because what really is what I want us to get to right now, though, is what are they doing hermeneutically? Though? So I hope you're clear that we're not anti-gay. And we're not even anti-people who are struggling with gay lifestyle. Yep. And, and we're, we're and you can call yourself a gay Christian and be a member of this church if what you mean by that is I'm not con- I'm not practicing. So yeah, yeah. You know, so, gay. so again, why the the issue hermeneutically is then people who come back and say no, I am going to practice and I'm going to do it. There's a ground on a way that I'm reading scripture and understanding a trajectory that's sent out, so that will justify that I am not. Just being, um, 
flaunting scripture or, or denying it or saying that it's, it's wrong. I'm actually justifying it from scripture. You see the, the hermeneutical justification? What's wrong with their hermeneutic? Saying that it, it sets up a trajectory to, to justify this. Okay, but they would they would come back and say, well, no, Scripture lays the foundation for all this. It, it sets the course. It sets the course for me making this decision that this is a God honoring thing, and that that me doing this is quite fine with God. They're they're going to say, no, it's not sin. What are they doing? How are they viewing that from Scripture? They're justifying their own uh, opinions, behaviors, and uh, so forth by taking one part of Scripture and blowing it out of proportion and saying, uh, ignoring the part of Scripture that's absolutely contrary. So, um, but they're they're doing they're doing more than than just focusing on one part of Scripture and and avoiding other things. What are they saying about the nature of Scripture? Instead of Scripture being the judge of us, we have become the judge of Scripture. And so we determine whether Scripture is speaking what's true or not. Right, and what allows, us, what, what allows us to do it and says, yeah, God really supports me doing that. The, the sensation thing? Yeah, what would you say? The sensation. Yes, yeah, the sensation thing. Because they're saying that scripture did, isn't closed on this, and that I'm not going to a text that is full and complete, but only one that sets a course. And that if we were good, responsible, spirit-led Christians, we're going to be able to apply this to our age and take the, 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 the shell of uh, the, the, the chaff of the stuff that's in scripture but really get to the heart of what the Bible's about here and and project to where, you know, Paul would really, if he's if he was today, he'd really champion what we're doing. You see how that's saying, well, I support God. I'm not against God. I'm not against the Bible. I'm really following in line with the Bible here. I'm tracking with it. Well, I think just for the sake of time, it's so crucial to say the essence here. Um, if you go back to the, if you took the, the confessional theology class, if you, could, if you took our hermeneutic class, you remember we described what was described as neo-orthodoxy, and or or also you know liberalism. And both of them, what they do is they see scripture. Here, here it is, guys. They see scripture as a window into the charisma. The, the so the word is behind or in front of the scripture. The scripture becomes the window into which we either discover what was at the heart of Paul. So, so if we think of Paul being inspired, Scripture becomes a window into the psyche, into the, to the, to what Paul was, was saying, albeit culturally determined. Mm-hmm. So, the, so the idea of liberalism now is to say, let's use the Scripture. So the Scripture's not inspired, though. Here's, here's the big flaw that I want to get to about cessation. The Scripture isn't inspired. 
What's inspired is, is that seed that's deposited by the Scripture in the heart of Paul, if you're liberal, or the seed that is deposited into our modern hearts from the Scripture, but the seed, the authority, is that's deposited into our lives, the kerygma, that, that is it's called, that's the Word of God that becomes alive. So do you understand what I'm saying? What, what is, the question comes down to what is inspired. Is it Paul that was inspired, so we're trying to find his kerygma? Is it us who's inspired, so that the kerygma is in us, and that's the continuing revelation position? Or is it the holy plenary scripture of the Bible that's inspired? The words themselves are the kerygma. Now, this is at the heart of the cessationist program. The liberals and the neo-orthodox said, no, it's not the scripture that's inspired. It's either them, and we're trying to make a correlation to them, deweeded of all our social, all their social problems, or I'm inspired. Do y'all understand that? So, so let me just say, as clearly as I know how, this is really important. Um, if you believe Paul is inspired, let me try to get back to what we we can now, we have permission to defang all his doctrines that have that, that are contrary to our culture. He obviously hasn't lived through the Enlightenment. He obviously still believes in the myths of miracles, and the myths of resurrection, and the myths of, and the myths of, and the myths of. So let's demythologize Paul of its cultural myths. And really what we're looking for is that resurrection experience that we have when we encounter God. It's not really about resurrection. Come on. Well, see, that's liberalism. That's the whole Jesus, that's that whole program of demythologizing. That's that's charisma word that is deposited into Paul, and we now have permission to, to get rid of all the cultural baggage of myths that was around it. What I hear this group doing much more, what I hear most neo-evangelicals doing, is being uh, what I call neo-orthodox. Now, again, Scripture's not inspired. It's me who reads it. It's reader response. So now I read the Scripture, and what's the response that it gives into my world? Well, the response is I should be more inclusive. That's how they're doing it. I should read Paul, and man, what he did in his cultural day is exactly the same is what those of us are trying to do today with the, with the gay issue. People who are isolated, like all the stuff you said earlier. And we do that because of where you locate inspiration. That is the key. And if you wonder why we're so dogmatic about cessationism, that we're worried about any view that holds to continuing revelation, is we know that that is exactly how the church, throughout all of its history, went astray. Because what you very subtly do is you, you redeposit the word either in me or in Paul or in a tradition, and it's not going back. Because so, the argument that you made over there um, is, at the end of the day, I think we have pretty substantial reasons to argue from Scripture that the practice of homosexuality is a sin. And we also have, I think, pretty sound arguments from Scripture to argue, if you read the paper I gave, I gave it to you, as to why it's a fundamental doctrine, because it gets to the very doctrine of God itself. At the end of the day, we are talking about the doctrine of God in the Amado Dei. In His image, He made them, 
In our image he made them, male and female he made them. We believe marriage is meant to image the, the being of God who is both male and female. Marriage was meant to have that purpose of, of imaging God. And to so you're now getting it. If you redefine marriage, it's of imaging God. You, my argument, one argument is you've just locked off one of the genders. God is either all male or all female if you're a homosexual marriage. But then, of course, it's a redemptive institution too. At the very core of that redemption is the marriage between Christ and His Church, and the way in which that relation works itself out in redemptive history. And marriage is meant to be a redemptive image, a redemptive metaphor, if you will. So when we talk about it, I just want you to see that, that what we're categorically denying to those guys is where they locate the doctrine of inspiration. And, it, and, and what they basically have concluded is that, that revelation, i.e. the charisma, inspiration, continues even to this day. And we are being inspired. By the reading of Scripture, we are being inspired to continue in the trajectory of demythologizing our cultural myths and getting to the you know the spirit of what Paul was doing back then. And the spirit of what Paul was doing was taking those who were socially marginalized or demonized and bringing them into the body of Christ, and that's the gay culture today. Yeah. B.B. Warfield has some great essays on how to think about this and just arguing just that, you know, God was intentional about the cultures that he spoke into, and he wasn't, it wasn't just haphazard that it got caught, caught up in the web of some culture that we have to peel away to understand as God spoke through that. Um, but actually, the, the story is the message, and the way that the story is told is part of it. And once you start divorcing the story from the message, you lose the message. And if it is a cultural thing, you, you should be able to discern that from Scripture. From the way Scripture talks about sure. it itself. So head covering. <laughs> it really doesn't make an argument for head covering based on anything relevant to head covering. Yeah, but there is a point that Paul is making in there that is important to, to understand. But he does base the relationship of male and female to creation itself. Mm. You see, now you go, oh, okay, head covering was a cultural manifestation of submission. What would that look like today in the home? Uh, if, you right. know, right. But the submission issue is not being debated. Yeah. So... Uh, I hope that's helpful. I think that that's really important. As, I think as we, we think about what Scripture is and how it operates in, in the life of our church and realizing that people can say things that are pretty different from what we would believe and try to justify it. And it can be a compelling justification uh, if you don't really understand your doctrine or Scripture that relates to this. So, all right, let me, uh, let me close this in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time and for uh, all the uh, encouragement and the conversations and the, the training that is going on here. Please continue to conform us to who you are and help us to be mindful as we confess uh, to do so in a way that reacts to your word and, and your spirit working within us. Lord, we lift up Craig. We pray for him that he'll um, uh, be healed up. And we pray for our worship tomorrow. May we uh, bring you honor and glory. In Jesus' name.